For MMB in Yale New Haven Health, this is a 30-second radio spot titled Transformational Radio, No Better Time, YNHH 0036000. At Yale New Haven Health, we've instituted a thorough and comprehensive 10-step safety program in all of our facilities to ensure that everything is clean, safe, and ready to treat you, a friend, or a family member at a moment's notice. And right now, there's never been a better time to take advantage of our world-class medical expertise in the presence of these new world-class safety measures. For more information, please visit us at ynhhs.org. Today, the day that I'm speaking these words is August 6th. Yesterday was, obviously, August 5th, and I want to talk about a long-ago August 5th and 6th, which in different parts of the world overlapped due to the way that some countries are ahead or behind the others due to the Earth's rotation and where they are in the batting order of that rotation. Sunday, August 5th, 1945, was a very busy day in baseball. 16 games were played, all of them part of doubleheaders. Had you been there, You wouldn't have seen many of your favorites because they were still away at war. But just as with baseball during the pandemic, it was probably better than nothing. In Boston, Art Herring of the Dodgers pitched a two-hit shutout at the Braves. Dixie Walker, who was 4F due to his being a frequently injured ball player in his 30s, You can't go over the top if you're going to pull your hamstring as you get out of the trench, went 5 for 10 in that doubleheader. The Dodgers roster is a reputation of just how big the United States was. We had maybe 133 million people back then, two and a half times fewer than what we have now, but it was still huge. And so we could patch. We could fight a war across the Atlantic and over the whole Pacific and still field baseball teams that had good players. The Dodgers had Walker, Augie Gallen, Eddie Stanky, Kurt Davis, and then mixed in were wartime compromises. Players like catcher Fats D'Antonio and a 17-year-old shortstop named Tommy Brown, who did about as well as you would expect a 17-year-old to do in the majors. The Braves were the same way. They got revenge in the nightcap, mostly because outfielder Tommy Holmes went 4-for-5 four and Ducky Medwick, batting right behind him, went 4-for-4. Four four. Holmes, I'm sure you recall, had a ridiculous season that year, hitting 352 with a 420 on base and a 577 slugging percentage this despite playing in a ridiculous pitcher's park it's like he did that in petco today he set a national league record with a 37 game hitting streak led the league in hits doubles and home runs drove in 117 scored 125 and as part of that he set up a stats combination a kind of record that's never been broken and never will be he hit 28 home runs, and struck out only nine times. And I know that any time that you say that record will never be broken, you're daring it to be broken. The universe hears you and sets somebody up to just splatter that record all over the pages. But I feel pretty confident about this one, unless there's just some incredible additional revolution in the way the game is played. The Yankees that day got swept by the A's. Bobo Newsom pitched a gem against them in the opener. This is how compromised by the war things were. This was the era of Joe DiMaggio, Charlie Keller, and Tommy Henrik. But 
The Yankees lineup in Game 1 was leading off Snuffy Sternweiss playing second base. Bud Matheny was in right field batting second. Hirsch Martin played left field and batted third. Nick Etten first base batting cleanup. Oscar Grimes at third base batting fifth. Tuck Steinbeck at center field batting sixth. Frank Crosetti the shortstop batting seventh. Aaron Robinson the catcher batting eighth. And pitcher Monk Dubiel was last. And those are not all terrible players. Sternweiss, Etten, Crosetti, Robinson were at least decent major leaguers at any time, not just in wartime. But it's that compromised mix. It's having that guy, that Stainback in center field. I don't mean to pick on Tuck Stainback, but he's a great example. This is a guy with a 66 career OPS plus, if I recall correctly, batting in place of Joe DiMaggio. Here's another sign of the times. The Senators' rotation was made up of four knuckleballers, and two of them started against the Red Sox in that Sunday's doubleheader, Roger Wolf, two Fs, and Dutch Leonard. Leonard came out after eight, and he was relieved by Mickey Hafner, who threw a knuckleball. You just couldn't get away from the knuckleball. And I tell you, that was probably a fun team to watch in whatever capacity you could watch it in 1945, in person, I guess, But having grown up with Yankees pitching staffs consisting of Phil Necro and Tommy John and Joe Necro and other guys who threw 83 miles per hour every single start unrelieved, it's awful. And these guys, these senators were effective, but still you want to see a strikeout every once in a while. I know today we see way too many strikeouts, but... Back then, I went whole seasons without seeing any bases are loaded. Can they get out of this without a ball on plate? No, they cannot, sir. No, they cannot. Some key players were back from the war at this point in time, the European phase having wound down in May. But as the Yankees lineup suggests, many good players were still away, and they should have been because the war in the Pacific dragged on. It could have been over, too, but the... Empire of Japan was not yet ready to say uncle, and maybe they shouldn't have. I mean, from their point of view, you think about it being a relatively small country, and yet they still had thousands and thousands of soldiers occupying mainland China and various islands that we had bypassed in our campaign of hopping across the Pacific and managed to scrape up a good number of defenders for the home islands, they, from a certain point of view, were not terribly threatened, and that's with the place having been bombed to the ground in all but a select few places. The Battle of Okinawa had ended in late June. Over 14,000 Americans died to take a 66-square-mile island, and many times that were wounded. That number staggered the American government and the American public, and both started to get twitchy about Olympic, the planned opening in the land campaign for the Japanese home islands, which was supposed to kick off late that year. And perversely, even though the Japanese suffered horrible losses, both military and civilian, and placed the home islands within range of American bombers, They knew that the Americans were balked by that number of casualties, and they thought, well, if we can just do that to them all the time, they'll have to sue for peace on our terms. 
there were some things they didn't know. Of course, double headers take a while. They took a while, even back then, when games sped by in a couple of hours. For example, the Phillies-Giants doubleheader that day started at 2 p.m. Game one, a Giants win propelled by big days from future Hall of Famers Mel Ott. He hit home run and Ernie Lombardi, multiple hits, ended at 4.30 p.m. I'm not sure how soon after Game 2 started, but let's figure a half-hour break for the players to change uniforms and drink a beer. Game 2 went 13 innings, ending on a two-run walk-off shot by Danny Gardella, who, and this is a story for a later time, was basically banned from baseball after that. So it took just a little longer than Game 1. You'd think today a 13-inning game would take a lot longer, but no, it ran about 20 minutes longer than the first game. Assuming that they did start at 5 p.m., it ended at 7.40 p.m. They did have lights at the polo grounds back then. Japan is 13 hours ahead of us. It was, as I speak these words, 75 years ago today that the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. That's as Americans figure it. As happy Giants fans made their way home from Harlem, or to Harlem, on the, the 5th, as baseball fans all over the country probably did not consider the massive privilege, the position that they were in of conducting a world war and simultaneously having spectator sports and leisure time and nothing exploding or burning down around them. Massive death, great suffering inflicted by their proxies was taking place on the other side of the world. An estimated 150,000 people died as a result of the bombing. I don't think that total includes people who were affected by radiation poisoning. As recently as last month, some surviving victims, men and women who were very young children 75 years ago, or even in vitro, were still trying to get help from the Japanese government. The Japanese government was reluctant, even in the post-war to acknowledge and aid the people of Hiroshima and subsequently Nagasaki in their suffering. The thing about an atomic bomb, as you know, that's different from a conventional bomb, is that the conventional bomb hits and it's over. It certainly, the effects do not linger on for decades after, but an atomic bomb involves radiation poisoning. There are consequences that go forward in time, just ripple endlessly outward, and will continue to do so for however long survivors still walk the earth. The Japanese almost turned them into a separate caste, hibakusha, they call them, and it's a euphemism. It's not victims. It's not sufferers. It's bomb-affected people. It's a strangely evasive term, as if they did not want to face it. And for a long time, they didn't. To put that number of fatalities in perspective, according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center, as per this day, 159,864 Americans have died of the novel coronavirus. The similarities are limited. Many of the bomb's victims died at the same time, about 8.15 a.m. local time. But many others succumbed slowly to burns from the resultant fires or radiation sickness. Any history of that time that puts you there, most famously, John Hersey's book-length New Yorker article from 46 is terrifying. 
in a way that is strangely familiar to us right here, right now, today. People who survived the initial blast but are suddenly dying of mysterious illnesses, the old dying faster than the young, hospitals overwhelmed, stacking patients in the hallways, piling bodies up outside because the ordinary processes for dealing with those things have broken down or simply can't keep up. And again, it's not the same thing, and this is not a man-made disaster or something that someone, a president, a series of generals, a target selection committee, who all of whom, at least the, the selection committee, were well aware of what they were doing, not just the devastation. They didn't know exactly how explosive an atomic bomb would be. Pretty big, they knew that, but greater than what had gone before at places like Dresden, they weren't positive. They knew about radiation poisoning, though, and they ignored that then, and they would continue to ignore it in subsequent testing, which poisoned generations of people, including right here in the United States in places like Nevada. Since August 6, 1945, there have been countless unresolvable debates as to whether the use of the atomic bomb was moral or necessary or one or the other. You cannot answer those questions, and I'm not going to attempt to do it now. Going back to before it happened, a lot of that argument had been based in projected casualty figures about the invasion of Japan predicated on a fanatical defense, a massive commitment of manpower by the Allies, and a battle that stretched on well into 1946. The problem with those numbers then and now is they weren't even as solid as based in reality as a Pakoda projection. No one knows where they came from. Everyone had their own numbers. The War Department had some. Douglas MacArthur's staff, still fighting the war out in the Pacific, had others. Herbert Hoover, who wasn't even in government, hadn't been for over a dozen years, somehow had his own set of projections, which apparently counted very heavily with President Harry Truman. These stats had an agenda, too. MacArthur's, for example, were meant to say, yeah, this is going to be bad, but we can deal, we can handle it. Hoover's were meant to say, it's going to be really bad, and we can't handle it, and you shouldn't invade anyway, because we need a strong Japan to serve as a counterweight to communist aggression in the Pacific. That calculus has informed hundreds of immoral and counterproductive decisions by American governments since then, by the way. Truman used to cite as a rationale for using this terrible weapon the need to avoid 100,000 American dead and probably many multiples of that in Japanese defenders and civilians. But no one knows where he got that number from either. There's no paper that says this, cite this. There's no colored piece of paper that he waved like the current president waved on the news the other day to distort the progress we've made against the coronavirus. And it is true that Russia, fulfilling just one promise from Yalta, had finally jumped into the war against Japan and were steamrolling through Manchuria. Manchuria. Yeah, Manchurios. It's a great Chinese cereal. Manchuria. The example of what they had done in Poland, not giving it back, I mean, was on everyone's mind, and the Americans really did not want to give the Soviets, Joseph Stalin, a strong basis on which to claim a role in the post-war 
occupation of Japan, and they were angling for that and proposing, like, what if we take the top half? You know, kind of like we did in Korea. That's working out well. And so there are some cynical aspects to this, but also kind of justifiably cynical aspects to it. It's a real thing. The projections are impossible to falsify, though, but there's no doubt that there would have been a great deal of dying, almost certainly more than did take place at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's also true that in March of that year, the United States had firebombed Tokyo with results that were every bit as horrific and murderous as the Hiroshima bombing, albeit with the absence of radiation damage. So the bomb was novel in the sense that it was a new and horrifying technology, but the devastation and the moral calculus that informed its use was not new, and in a way those decisions had already been made. One aspect of the decision that has always troubled me is that using the bomb on Germany never seems to have been considered. Now, the bomb was not ready, or bombs, plural, until July, and the Germans capitulated in May, so in that sense it was a moot point. But there was also a racial component of the war in the Pacific that was absent from the war in Europe, where it was largely white guys against white guys. As with the projections for the Battle of Japan, it's impossible to prove a counterfactual to show that something that did not and could not have happened played out in a fair way, but it is troubling. I just know this, that when you read of what happened in Hiroshima, where the Japanese housed civilians right on top of war-related industries and military installations, where people looked up at the bomb flash and literally had their eyes melted out of their heads, who were given instant cases of leukemia, when you see photographs of children turned into columns of ash, when you see the people who had the darker colors of their clothing burned into their skin because lighter fabrics bounced the light of the explosion while the darker ones just transported them right into the body. It's impossible to rejoice that one's country won the war. It was a great victory, too, one not just for American power, but over a militaristic, racist form of government. That is real. That is important. That we subsequently let down our own principles in that regard is a different matter. That somehow... Fewer people died as the result of the decision to use the bomb perhaps makes it defensible and right, but somehow it's still not defensible and right. It's a form of cognitive dissonance to me, rightness and human suffering. I don't know how to balance those things. Americans were laughing that afternoon as the Enola Gay flew from Tinian to Japan with the Germans vanquished. Some baseball greats were back. Hank Greenberg, one of the first players to leave for the war, had returned in July. He homered in the first game against the White Sox that day. America was so great and powerful and safe, at least on the home front, that it could simultaneously stage a ball game or whole seasons of ball games while simultaneously investing billions of dollars in a technological roll of the dice, winning that roll and then destroying an entire city with a shrug. In that, the United States of America truly was blessed, which doesn't mean it was right, and it doesn't mean it was wrong. It was both and neither. The only part of the discussion that isn't unresolvable and infinite is the fact that it would have been better never to have had the war in the first place. I'm Stephen Goldman. 75 years ago today, 
as ball players shot baseballs into the air, the United States shot a silver-plated arrow into the sky. It came down over Hiroshima and everywhere. From then on, we'd never know if a plane passing overhead was carrying happy vacation-goers or the end of the world in a metal bottle, a cloud in a can, intended to send us forever into the infinite inning. I hope this podcast, this episode, finds all of you well and safe and untroubled by the pandemic or the world situation or anything, really. This week, I'm joined by Cliff Corcoran in his usual rotation spot, and we discuss the start of the season, simple enough, a conversation about actual baseball for once. As George Harrison sang, it seems like years since it's been here, and that makes all of you my little darlings. Seriously, though, I thought to myself as we started out the conversation, well, we really have to get to the fact that the Marlins and the Phillies and the Cardinals and so on have have suffered these outbreaks of the virus that call the rationale for this whole truncated season into question, but I didn't want to. And we were having fun discussing the baseballness of everything, so I kept putting it off, and basically we ended up talking around it in a whole lot of different ways. And at the very end, maybe with two minutes to go in the show, two to five minutes, we finally addressed it. And I think you'll understand that it suffuses everything. It's there. It's the elephant in the room, but no one's ignoring it. The elephant is, it just doesn't need to be commented on in that way. We had a lot of fun. I I hope you do enjoy the program. As always, I'm sorry to be so late. I'm not sure where the time went. Stop me if I've said this before, but going back to March when everything shut down here in New Jersey, my ability to keep to a schedule has been difficult, non-existent, particularly when it comes to sleep. And biologically, I'm a night owl, and I also take a lot of medications that screw with my energy level. And between the two and just kind of the, the lack of expectation to be anywhere or go anyplace at a certain particular time has just unraveled my life. And it's not that I'm goofing off or doing less work than I had been. I'm definitely putting in the hours. I'm not sitting here and staring into space. I'm, I'm applying myself. But somehow everything just slows down. And I don't know if you've had this experience. And then at night, even though I'm fantastically tired, I can't sleep. And then I can't wake up. And it's like I'm in this fat Elvis stage of my life, except without the fun, fun amphetamine part. And so I, I just stay tired. And I, I'm I'm not suffering. I'm not complaining. I'm not making excuses. And please, don't call my parents and have the principal keep me after school. I, I don't want that. But I, I do apologize. I just, I wish, I feel very helpless with all of this. 
A couple of quick announcements. The third episode of Everything is Broken, the Dylan podcast, Craig Calcaterra, Mike Farron, and I have been doing is up now. And we look at the freewheeling Bob Dylan. And if you want to listen ahead, episode four will be, perversely, about 1985's album Empire Burlesque. I really like the title. I like the title better than the album. And I joke about the the perversely part. I found a lot to think about with that one, actually, which is what makes Dylan a great artist, even when he is not firing on all cylinders. There's still stuff to pick at. I'll make this wager with you, though. If you listen and you're not a Dylan fan, you may still come out of it not being a Dylan fan, but you'll understand why we are or many people are, and you'll be able to, at the very least, stare at the songs as if you were at an art museum and say, oh yes, I admire the brushstrokes. We, by we, I mean Lincoln Mitchell, Craig Calcaterra, there he is again, Craig Calcaterra, the ubiquitous Craig Calcaterra, Tova Wang, and Frank Ritty and I have decided that we will be doing a third Zoom panel towards the end of this month, Say It Ain't Contagious 3. We will have a flyer out on that shortly. It is waiting for me to finish this podcast so I can go write the copy. It's a great honor, and now I know how Thomas Jefferson felt when John Adams and the gang said, no, you write it. I volunteered. I love writing so much. I'll volunteer to write greeting cards or fortune cookie filling, anything. Really, are you wearing your mask when you go out? Does it seem like the mask thing, the fact that we have to wear them, and even the state of Mississippi now has a mandatory mask order, it only took them until August, really brings out the narcissism in people, the antisocial quality. And I don't think it's really the politics of it, that Trump wouldn't get behind masks for a long time and still isn't really behind them. And so it became some kind of culture war thing. That's a small part of it. It gives emotionally deformed people a kind of cover to be emotionally deformed. But it isn't the real reason someone goes into a Starbucks and goes nuts when they're told they won't be served if they don't wear a mask like the old Lone Ranger, except lower on the face. And what I suspect it is, is that at all times, there are a lot of antisocial people out there. But normally there is less opportunity for it to manifest itself outwardly. They must be pure fun to live with. They must be really damaging to their spouses or their kids, and that's unfortunate. They probably poison everyone around them in the workplace, too. But normally they can keep it together long enough to go to the supermarket. They walk in, they grab their bottle of milk, and they walk out. And that's that. They're probably the kind of people who also bring 28 items to the express checkout line. But that gesture is not going to cause anyone to catch a virus. Hypertension, maybe, but not a virus. And so unless you deal with them on a personal basis, not on the passing them in the supermarket basis, you don't realize that they're walking around with this noise in their head, this constant undercurrent of anger, of resentment at other people. It's always mumbling to them, son of a bitch, fuck bastards. What is it they want from me? These scumbags. I can't deal with these motherfuckers. Pardon my language, but I really do think it's like that. And now they're being asked to do this little small thing to protect other people who they don't care about. They don't exist for them. They have to lift a finger for someone other than themselves, and it breaks them. 
they just go into a kind of mental logic loop. The one that Captain Kirk used to fry computer after computer on every other episode of the original Star Trek series. You know, I hate everyone, but I must protect everyone. I must shout hate. I must sound love. Error, error. And then they melt down. Really, every other episode. Particularly if the computer was inspiring people to have more sex than Captain Kirk himself was in line to get. That was a major transgression of human freedom, according to him. And that computer had to go so that the people could just stop having sex immediately. And so the result of this mental confusion is that people are getting themselves in massive trouble over this. There was a story this week about a guy in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, who went into a cigar store without a mask, and the employees say, hey, sorry, bro, we can't sell you any cancer sticks until you cover up your mug. The guy grabs a couple of cigars and runs out the door without paying, So one of the employees follows him out to the parking lot and the guy who stole the cigars pulls a gun and starts shooting at him, not hitting him as far as I can tell. The next day, the cops go to arrest this guy because, you know, what's the hurry? He only shot at somebody. It's just a standard thing in America now. And he pulls an AK-47 and starts a firefight. The cops shoot him, not fatally. So now he's under arrest. According to CNN, he was charged with attempted criminal homicide, aggravated assault, aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, two counts of robbery, reckless endangerment, and carrying a firearm without a license. Plus, he had a prior offense, so he was charged with persons prohibited to possess a firearm. He's likely to go away for a long time, all because he short-circuited over wearing a mask. His lawyer said he has a, a lot of stressful things going on. We, we shouldn't judge him. And he listed them. And yeah, this is a guy with some issues in his private life. But the mask was the thing that effectively destroyed his life. A piece of cloth. The mask unmasks your inner asshole. As long as no one makes any demands on you, you can just stay home and watch Fox. But otherwise, once you get out of the house, try to control yourselves, you know? I mean, my grandfather, an old Frenchman, used to say that liquor revealed the truth of someone, that a person who was a mean drunk was probably, as nice as they might seem in day-to-day life, a mean person, and vice versa. A happy drunk was probably a happy person. And I don't know if that's true or not. I have not made it a point to spend time with drunk people and compare them to their sober selves in my existence, but it sure seems like the mask has that effect. In my young single days before I met my future wife, I went to a party in college and started chatting up this girl, and I did not know going into it that she was inebriated in some sense. Not drunk, I don't think. I think she was high. There was an interesting collection of pharmaceuticals going around that night. I have always been teetotal, so I was neither... And I was having this conversation with her, and it took on this circular quality in which we talked as people do, and then she would say, yeah, that's a really good point. I really like what you're saying. And I thought, wow, I'm doing unusually well tonight. I feel confident and virile and attractive. All these things I usually do not feel or did not feel at the time. No, I just don't feel them, period. (laughs) And so we'd go on in that vein for 15 or 20 minutes, and then she'd say, what's your name? And I'd say, Steve, and she'd introduce herself and say, 
hi, I'm Debbie. We'd been talking for like an hour at this point. And the cycle would begin itself again. Yeah, that's really neat. Yeah, I, I like that movie too. Who are you again? And I eventually gave it, hey, it's been great. I'm going to go now. I gave it up as a, a bad job. But once was enough, you know? You start to feel as if you're in a bad play. Hey, that line worked the previous three times. Maybe I'll try it again. You know what's worse than Groundhog Day? It's Groundhog Hour. And people who can't bring themselves to wear a mask and think they're making a point, they're living it. And if you run into someone like that or know someone like that, I mean, if you run into someone like that, stay away. Because like our cigar store hero... He might just be carrying an automatic weapon. But in general, if you know someone who can't bring themselves to put on a tiny bit of cloth, the question to ask them, I think, is what does this say about you? Possibly it's better to just never speak to them again. Before you never speak to me again, I have one more tale to tell you a little bit more ruminating. I don't have one more story for you, but several small ones because it's a strange in-between time, and so appropriately, it is time for us to take a strange in-between break. But please come back on the other side when we will talk further about old-time baseball and the way it reflects on the world we live in today. Stay safe until then, and as Casey Stengel said, be careful of fish, them bones can be murdered. Fiery horse with a speed of light, a clot of dust, and a hearty Hyo Silver, the Lone Ranger. As a small business owner, you're reimagining the way you work. From rethinking your bandwidth to reassessing your voice solutions, you're changing the way you do business. And at Cox Business, so are we. Our flexible internet and voice packages give you the solutions you need to get back to business. Rethink, reconnect, reimagine. Get 25 megs of internet and IPC select for only $74 per month for six months. No annual contract required. And A3120 restrictions apply. Visit coxbusiness.com for details. All services subject to Cox Business general terms. As a small business owner, you're reimagining the way you work. From rethinking your bandwidth to reassessing your voice solutions, you're changing the way you do business. And at Cox Business, so are we. Our flexible internet and voice packages give you the solutions you need to get back to business. Rethink, reconnect, reimagine. Get 25 megs of internet and IPC select for only $74 per month for six months. No annual contract required. And A3120 restrictions apply. Visit coxbusiness.com for details. All services subject to Cox Business general terms. A couple of days ago, the Marlins put 20 COVID-infected players on a bus, a plague ship with wheels and flies, as the old joke goes, so they could go back to Miami from Philadelphia. Imagine the driver. Imagine the passengers. In 1924, there was a hit play on Broadway, Outward Bound, written by British playwright Sutton Vane. Great name, Sutton Vane. Without giving away too much in the way of spoilers... Well, I'm going to give away a lot, actually. It's a 95-year-old play. There are a bunch of characters on an ocean liner going somewhere. They don't know where they've come from or where they're going, and it soon becomes apparent that the play, and this has been filmed twice, so again, some of you probably know this, they're dead. Some will go ashore in heaven, some in hell, and there are potentially a few known as halfways who have to stay on the boat. The reason is a spoiler I will not disclose. I caught the 1944 film version titled 
not very subtly, Between Two Worlds on Turner Classics at some point. Has a good cast, including John Garfield, Paul Henry and Sidney Greenstreet, both of Casablanca, and Edmund Gwen, who's best remembered for playing Chris Kringle in Miracle on 34th Street. But if you've never seen Alfred Hitchcock's Foreign Correspondent, which is considered lesser Hitchcock, I confess I just love it, though. It's one of my favorite films. Gwen is in there for, oh, probably not quite five minutes, and yet it's a incredible, wonderful, scene-stealing five minutes. And speaking of five minutes, I think I missed the first five when I did catch Between Two Worlds on Turner Classics, so I was pretty lost until I realized that this was essentially a two-hour Twilight Zone episode. I mention this because it seems to me you could recast the film with Marlins players, make Derek Jeter the driver, and have a story fit for 2020. Where are we going? Where have we been? Why are we going? What happens to us when the bus stops? No one knows. Do the Marlins have any players named Millicent Barnes? Millicent Barnes, age 25, young woman waiting for a bus on a rainy November night. Not a very imaginative type is Miss Barnes, not given to undue anxiety or fears, or for that matter, even the most temporal flights of fancy. Like most young career women, she has a generic classification as a, quote, girl with a head on her shoulders, end of quote. All of which is mentioned now because in just a moment, the head on Miss Barnes's shoulders will be put to a test. Circumstances will assault her sense of reality and a chain of nightmares will put her sanity on a block. Millicent Barnes, who in one minute will wonder if she's going mad. That's Twilight Zone Season 1, Episode 21, written by Rod Serling, narration by Rod Serling, title not A Day on the Bus with the Miami Marlins, the sick Miami Marlins, the diseased, the plague-ridden Miami Marlins. This has nothing to do with baseball, although there was baseball going on with players we still like to remember like Iron Man McGinnity and Cy Young, John McGraw, Ed Delahanty, we, Willie Keeler, who was off by disease himself. It was just yesterday, really, but the bubonic plague was loose in the world. It always is, actually. This wave, and this scares me anyway, like Millicent Barnes, my sanity is constantly being challenged, had begun in 1855. What I'm about to tell you happened in 1899. That is to say that the outbreak was ongoing as of 44 years later, and it kept going. It killed millions in places like China, India, and yes, it made its way to the United States. It first showed up in Hawaii and then in San Francisco. On November 18th of that year, 1899, the British ship J.W. Taylor steamed into New York Harbor after about a month at sea. It was flying a yellow flag, which reads a certain way. It reads, help, we're sick. Their previous stop had been in Santos, Brazil, where the plague was rampaging. One of the young stewards, a Robert Hope, had been in the hospital there, being treated for something either as commonplace as eczema or, well, as commonplace as syphilis. Either way, he got back on board the ship before it left. About a week later, his symptoms began. A blinding headache, strange swellings of the armpits and the groin, a high fever that just wouldn't quit. They tried to save him, but there was nothing you could do back then except hope, particularly at sea. He died two weeks into the voyage and bequeathed to his shipmates the disease. To their credit, they flew that flag. They didn't just sail into New York Harbor and dock saying, oh, no, no, we're fine. It's fine. It's just a cold. 
Black Death on New York Steamer, ran the headlines. Plague-stricken vessel brings dreaded scourge from South America. It's just like today's cruise ships, by the way. This was not a cruise ship. It was a cargo ship. Nothing is ever new in this world. It all happened before, and it will happen again. New York's population at the time was about 3.5 million, densely packed. The city quarantined the ship in the harbor. They would not let it dock. They had, and still have, although they're mostly abandoned today, a couple of artificial islands, Hoffman and Swinburne, which were used as quarantine stations. If you were an immigrant and you showed up at Ellis Island bleeding out of your eyes, they stuck you on one of these two islands until hopefully you got better. The New York authorities took the sailors that they knew were sick and they put them on one of the two islands and the ones that didn't have any symptoms but they couldn't be sure about and they put them on the other. And then the ship just sat there in the harbor, its cargo unloaded. In fact, a member of the City Board of Health, one Dr. John Cosby, threatened to burn the ship. I intend the people of this city shall be protected. That is the paramount duty, and it will be performed whether the cost is $2 or $2 million. Compare, contrast to our present leadership in college essay form. You have one hour. Go. The city set about disinfecting the ship and airing out its cargo, which was unroasted coffee beans. I want to quote directly from a paper on this episode by Rowan Tabor. Tabor? Tabor? I don't know. I apologize, Rowan. Of the University of Oregon, because it's also worth contrasting to the present. Despite the extensive measures taken to disinfect the ship, ultimately, health officials would not have any certain way of knowing if the sum of the disinfection techniques had worked. How do you know without exposing people? Similarly to the more recent Ebola crisis, the tailor was exploited by the media as it existed then, the newspapers. And there are quotes by politicians and columnists and so on from that period that would be tweets today that are hysterical and yet are no different from what we are experiencing now, or say experienced more recently during the Ebola crisis. It was completely exploited. People saying, I can't believe they're going to let these, I heard they're going to let them in, even though they're sick. We're all going to die once they dock. We'll all die just because they're in the harbor. And if you drink their coffee, you'll get sick. How can President McKinley let this happen? Was he really born in Ohio or was it Djibouti? McKinley birtherism, it was a thing, I am pretending. They really believed, by the way, that you could potentially get the plague from beans that had been roasted, ground, and then had hot water poured over them. I don't totally blame them for this, as germ theory was kind of a new thing in the United States, or at least a recent thing. In some parts of the country, we still haven't figured it out. I think when the newspapers published headlines screaming, burn the coffee, it was only because they couldn't say, burn the people, even though that's what they meant. As more ships with sick people on board arrived, there were arguments about closing the port of New York altogether, which would have been an economic disaster, and certainly a humanitarian one too, given that if you were thrown out of work in those days, you were on your own. Also something we're considering now. This dragged on for almost a month. The coffee beans were finally accepted. The hospitalized crewmen recovered and got back on board, and the J.W. Taylor sailed away. And it was never seen again. No, that's not true either. With the exception of young Robert Hope, Everyone was fine. Why? 
because despite the newspapers fomenting panic, despite there being legitimate cause for panic, everyone just did what they were supposed to do. They isolated the sick, they roasted and ground the coffee, and then sold it to unsuspecting buyers in Chicago who drank it at breakfast with their mouse and roach-filled sausages because Upton Sinclair hadn't yet written The Jungle. They had let it sit in New York Harbor for about two months, just airing out, and then they turned it into fin de siècle taster's choice. And you know who drank it? Frank Chance, Clark Griffith, Roger Bresnahan, and the Cubs finished sixth due to drinking plague coffee. McKinley was shot, Theodore Roosevelt became president, and stuck to tea. I am again pretending. He did, however, chuck his breakfast sausage once he read The Jungle and got the FDA going because, you know, see problem, fix problem. That's the way it's supposed to work. And one more note in this conjuries of pandemic paranoia. This past Sunday, when the Mets misplaced Yenis Cespedes, only to learn that he had misplaced himself, he had absconded. I thought that Cespedes was going to be another story we've heard before. Not a tragic one, just a silly one. It turned out, no, that we haven't really heard this story before because we're living in an unprecedented time, no matter how often some people in the BP comments say things like, in 1959, baseball played through a flu epidemic, 100,000 Americans died, and no one stopped the season. I keep wondering why we have to be bound by any precedent in which 100,000 people were ignored to death, as if that should inform what we're doing. That's the example that we should take. You've no doubt heard this one. But in the 1920s and 30s, the Cardinals had a pitcher named Flint Rem, Charles Flint Rem of Rems, South Carolina. The town was named after his family. He was nicknamed Shad. You'd think Flint would be good enough, but no. Did Shad Rowe remind folks of Shad Rem or vice versa? Shad, Flim, Flint, whatever his name was. He was a drinking man and a severe one. As a 25-year-old with the champion 1926 Cardinals, he went 20-7 and with a strong 3.22 ERA, his strikeout rates aren't at all impressive by today's standards, and frankly, they weren't even great by their standards, but he was reputed to be a hard thrower. He had other good seasons, but consistency was not his bag, in part because he was continually being suspended or even demoted to the minors for violating curfew, which is just a polite paraphrase for saying he was just always drunk. Branch Rickey left him in the minors for the entire 1929 season. One newspaper writing late in his career put it so Gently, Flint Rem has long been a frolicker. Today we would say he was a substance frolicker, a frolicking abuser. He over-frolicked. He frolicked his way right out of a good chunk of his career. Even in his bad years, though, he was sometimes pretty good. On July 29, 1934, the Braves hosted the Dodgers in Boston. Rem was with the Braves at that point. He took the mound for the home team. Rem walked the leadoff batter. And the number two hitter, Jersey Joe Strip, decided to bunt the batter over to second. The papers called this an intentional attempt. Well, they're all intentional, but an attempt to sacrifice. No one thought he was bunting for a hit, but the bunt was too good and it went for an infield hit. And I was going to tell you that that should have been called a fielder's choice because the batter's intent was to sacrifice and I feel like I've seen that call made where official scorers mind read inferred intent on the part of the batter. But I surveyed my colleagues at Baseball Prospectus and not for the first time they said I was nuts. So, OK, Flint Rem was not robbed of a no hitter, but that indeed was the only hit he allowed all day that bunt single to third base. 
back to 1930. The Cardinals decided to give Rem another chance. Who wouldn't give a 20-game winner another chance? That's the Dwight Gooden story, among others, right? As spring training ramped up, one columnist wrote, Rem has the ability to be a winning pitcher in the National League if he so desires. He could have been the leading pitcher of the American Association last season, too, if he so wished. Flint did not so wish and became a bust for Minneapolis. It is a pity, too, that Rem does not make more of his opportunities. He has a world of stuff as a pitcher, but lacks willpower, being unable to resist invitations from good-time Charlies to go on parties. Inasmuch as Rem is just turning 27, it is not too late for him to get onto himself and take his baseball seriously. All Flint needs to make him successful in the major leagues is ambition and the courage to say no when invited to break training rules. Well, there are invitations, and then there are invitations that are much harder to refuse. The 1930 Cardinals got off to a slow start, and as of August, just about two-thirds of the way through the season, they were still at 500. They were in fourth place, 11 games behind the league-leading Brooklyn Dodgers, who were having a very surprising season. And to spoil things just a bit, the Cardinals, at that point, flipped the switch and went 43-13 and 13 from then on. Part of the change was a deadline deal that added veteran spitballer Burley Grimes. They rapidly climbed up the standings, and in mid-September, with 12 games to go, they headed to Brooklyn just a half game out. So this series could very possibly decide the season. The Cards tabbed lefty Wild Bill Hallahan to start Game 1 against Dazzy Vance, but he went right out and slabbed a cab door onto his right, not pitching hand, non-pitching hand, I should say. Manager Gabby Street then called on Rem to replace him. And in response, Rem just poof, vanished for 48 hours. So Street went back to Hallahan and just hoped no one would hit a comebacker. In a performance that really deserves the label gutty, Hallahan held the Dodgers hitless for seven innings despite the bad mitt. Vance was nearly as good, though, and the game was scoreless into the 10th inning. The card's top of the 10th was, for all intents and purposes, shaped like the pandemic extra innings we're getting now. Andy High opened the frame with a double, so the inning began kind of with a man on second and no outs. Hallahan bunted him to third, and Taylor Douthit singled him home. The Dodgers loaded the bases against Hallahan with one out in the bottom of the frame, but... Dodgers catcher Al Lopez hit into a game-ending 5-4-3 double play. The Cards would go on to sweep the series and face the A's in the World Series. Rem showed up at the team hotel two days later with a story. Gangsters, he said, possibly with money on the Dodgers, had kidnapped him at gunpoint, driven him to New Jersey, and forced him to drink. That New Jersey detail is a really nice touch of verisimilitude because the New York gangsters did cross over. Where was Dutch Schultz murdered in 1935? Newark. His famous delirious last words like, They are Englishmen, and they are a type I don't know who is best. They are us. Oh, sir, get the dollar roofing. You can play jacks, and girls do that with a softball and do tricks with it. I take all events into consideration. No, no. And it is no. It is confused, and it says no. A boy has never wept nor dashed a thousand kim. Did you hear me? Oh, oh, dog, biscuit, and when he is happy, he doesn't get snappy. That happened in New Jersey. Every Bruce Springsteen song is about that. 
buried in the same cemetery as Babe Ruth, Dutch Schultz. Rem kept saying, it was terrible. It was so awful. I pleaded with the bandits not to make me drink hard liquor, which you know I abhor, but they wouldn't listen. It was horrible. Years later, Rem admitted the story was false and insisted that he had not made it up, but Branch Rickey, of all people, had, or maybe Gabby Street, that he had just been down with a case of food poisoning and he had been in the hotel the entire time in his room just clutching his stomach and that for some reason these two stand-up gentlemen felt the need to cover for him. As of that moment, though, police were combing New Jersey for the house where Rem had been held and the National League was getting ready to begin a major investigation into gamblers trying to fix the 1930 pennant race. Branch Rickey apparently told them they had more productive things to do than investigate Shad Rem's fish story. Rem started Game 2 of the World Series. The A's hit him hard. Mickey Cochran slammed a home run off of him, and both Al Simmons and Jimmy Dykes had RBI doubles. Street hooked him with two outs in the third. That didn't happen a lot in those days. Possibly, he was thinking, why couldn't he have been kidnapped today? Well, that's not what happened to Yenis Espides. He just toes the better part of discretion and went home. For just a moment, though, it was in the realm of possibility that history had repeated itself, as it so often does. But no, Cespedes' home and Flint Shad Row stands alone, somewhere in time, tied to a chair, drinking shot after shot after shot, because he was in fear of being shot. I've said my piece for the week. I'll be right back with Cliff Corcoran. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many-fold, and the end is not yet. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. In their present form, these bombs are now in production, and even more powerful forms are in development. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the far east. We are now prepared to destroy more rapidly and completely every productive enterprise the Japanese have in any city. We shall destroy their docks, their factories, and their communications. Let there be no mistake we shall completely destroy Japan's power to make war. It was to spare the Japanese people from utter destruction that the ultimatum of July the 26th... As a small business owner, you're reimagining the way you work. From rethinking your bandwidth to reassessing your voice solutions, you're changing the way you do business. And at Cox Business, so are we. 
Our flexible internet and voice packages give you the solutions you need to get back to business. Rethink, reconnect, reimagine. Get 25 megs of internet and IPC select for only $74 per month for six months. No annual contract required. And 83120 restrictions apply. Visit coxbusiness.com for details. All services subject to Cox Business general terms. As a small business owner, you're reimagining the way you work. From rethinking your bandwidth to reassessing your voice solutions, you're changing the way you do business. And at Cox Business, so are we. Our flexible internet and voice packages give you the solutions you need to get back to business. Rethink, reconnect, reimagine. Get 25 megs of internet and IPC select for only $74 per month for six months. No annual contract required. And 83120 restrictions apply. Visit coxbusiness.com for details. All services subject to Cox Business general terms. My next guest has made more appearances on this program than any man or beast. He writes for Sports Illustrated and other publications. He's the man of a thousand baseball masks. He's Cliff Corcoran. How are you, Cliff? Doing pretty well, Steve. How are you doing? I'm I'm functional. Have you got any baseball masks yet, themed masks? I don't have one, although I think we just ordered one for my daughter, uh, okay. who, who very much wanted a Yankee mask. So she's getting one. I, I only have two very generic cotton masks, plus a few of like old woodworking type ones that I had from b- the before times. But uh, the two the two work sufficient for me because I'm pretty much other than the grocery store. I'm pretty much home all the time. I remember when the masks first became a thing. I, I re- remember they were hard to come by initially because no one knew that it was going to be this nationwide. I mean, never mind that it was going to be a subject of massive controversy, which is ridiculous, but just that everybody would need to be wearing them for a long time. And all you could get, as you said, were these very plain cloth masks, which is largely what I have or completely what I have. And I remember saying to my wife, like, give this a month and everything. We'll have Pokemon masks and Mm -hmm. corporate branded masks of every kind. But I guess since you- Which is a good thing. Yes. And that has happened. And that, that is a very good thing that they realize this is now an industry. And so they've turned them out so that, I mean, they're not medical grade masks, but they're the, they're sufficient for the general population to wear to not spread the virus. And yeah, they, they, you can get all sorts of crazy designs. I mean, you watch, we're watching baseball games now and they, they obviously all the teams have their team branded, but it's not just one specific design. They've got like four or five different designs on it on every team. And that's probably, they probably have even more than that available on the MLB shop or wherever else. So yeah, I mean, we got a couple of, cotton masks off etsy or something you know <laughs> in in the early days but now yeah it, it's equ- equivalent to the t-shirt industry which is good because that's what it should be only procrastination has stopped me from i can actually do this setting up in the infinite inning t-shirt store some infinite inning logo masks and i, I probably should do that but you're right it's absolutely a good thing anything that encourages people to wear the masks if it, it makes them feel good to to have some kind of of branding on it, then that's great. I, I guess for you, though, specializing as you do in caps of defunct teams, getting that 1933 Washington Senators face mask manufactured is probably not a priority. It's interesting you chose that, too, because the, the original Senators are like the biggest hole in my <laughs> in my regular cap collection because I'm so picky about the dimensions of the W. I won't get into it. I'm not, I'm not going to go down the cap rabbit hole. But yeah, yeah, I would. Do, that would be the sort of thing I'd be looking for. If you can find me some St. Louis Browns masks or the like, Seattle Pilots mask, that'd be a good one. I'd be happy to pick those up. 
that mention is foreshadowing. We'll get to that in a minute because I do have a, a uniform comment question for you a bit later. So baseball is back, and for the first time in a while, we have the chance to discuss something totally frivolous, at least before we get to the serious stuff. It didn't take long for the serious stuff to reassert itself. And I, I was amused by this. I have a bit of a trivia question for you. There, there's no <laughs> shame if you if you don't know it. And I, I will admit right off the top that I did not necessarily know this. I, I looked at the stats. I kind of eyeballed it. And then I asked the guys at Baseball Prospectus to validate my guesses, which they they did. And I'm sure you would do just as well as, as I did if you had a full day to prepare for this question. <laughs> but in three of the first four games, maybe four of the first five, the Rays led off first baseman G-Man Choi. Uh-huh. And that doesn't happen very often. If you think about it, being a First baseman usually means you can't run. There are always exceptions, but for the most part, that's where guys who can't run go. If you could run, you'd be a right fielder, left fielder, whatever. So for a long time, being able to run was a prerequisite of being a leadoff hitter, never mind on base percentage. You know the whole story. Right. They, it was just, oh, is he fast? Ivy Olsen was a shortstop in the teens who led off for the Dodgers for like 10 years. He had a career on base percentage of 310. Some years he batted 650 times with a 290 on base percentage. It's, it just really goes to show how unaware people were. Cause yeah, he could run a little, but you know, he right. just never got, I mean, he, and he played shortstop. You want a middle infielder, right? right a speedy right. middle infielder or a center fielder. That's your leadoff man for the majority of major league history. But even though they didn't have on base percentage, they had run scored, and you'd think that they would have known, hey, we had this guy, he was up there for 154 games, and he really was. He played every single game, Mm -hmm. he batted nearly 700 times, and he scored 75 runs. Yeah. And that shouldn't be possible. (laughs) That that violates the laws of nature. I mean, there are bad leadoff men who are better than that, who still, just by virtue of having that kind of volume— at, at the top of the order, have scored more runs than that. And, I mean, that that those Dodgers teams were not good hitting teams, but it's kind of circular because he was one of the reasons they weren't good hitting teams. Right. As I was saying, for all these reasons, there have not been very many regular leadoff men slash first basemen. So here is my trivia question. I, I have the top 10 in front of me in Ooh. terms of career plate appearances by leadoff man slash first baseman. Name as many members as you can. This is 1920 to present, and I will give you a three-part hint. One is an active player. Uh-huh. One is a Hall of Famer. One is definitely not in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> okay, I, will, I would just like to say, I will say this, that in these first handful of games, Max Muncy is leading off for the Dodgers against right-handed pitching, and I believe Anthony Rizzo on Wednesday, Wednesday? Yes. No, Tuesday, on Tuesday, led off for the Cubs. So it's it's happening. It's all happening. <laughs> okay, so historical Willie Montanez? Mm-mm. Oh, I thought that might be one. Uh, <laughs> mm, first baseman. Oh boy, this is this is not going to go uh I'm trying to think of Keith Hernandez? No, although you I he occurred to me like he could have arguably. like a low power high on base guy, yeah. Right. Maybe maybe it's I would put Keith, Keith Hernandez in a leadoff spot, but the, his managers at the time didn't. Boy, <laughs> so there was I just had somebody else in my head, and I can't. One's an active player, not Joey Votto. No, your you were your general description of the kind of the shape of the player is the correct. Of, though. Bill Buckner. No. Oh, man, I want to say Garvey, but I know that's not right. No. Well, I'm obviously I'm doing terribly at this. <laughs> oh, we gave him an active guy, right? He's an active right. guy, and it's not Muncie. No. 
I should feel like I should be able to get the active guy, but I'm I'm trying to like remind myself what teams exist in the world. And I just uh, want to say to everybody, it is totally unfair for me to ambush Cliff with this question. And again, I I would have guessed a couple, but I would not have done well with this. Either. I'm doing I'm doing horrendously. <laughs> well, should I give it to you, Todd Helton? No, that's no, not good. that's not good. I'm, I don't know. I'm pi- I'm picking names that are too big. I'm sure. Yes, uh, kind of, kind yeah. of. Well, like I said, there is one Hall of Famer, and there's one guy who could be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, no, I don't know. Wait, give me, give me something. Give me, All right. uh, so, yeah. So the the active guy is Matt Carpenter. Okay, okay. I don't think of him as a first baseman, but he as a first baseman, he did lead off. Sure, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, because they've moved him around. Yeah, they moved. He's been all over the place. He is last. He is last on the, on the the career top. He's ten. tenth. He's he tenth. tenth. Yeah, ninth okay. was, and this is, I guess, different points in his career, which is why it makes it hard to think of him this way. Darren Erstad. Who, oh man, I forgot he played first base. Yeah, I they, always think of him as a center fielder. Yeah, okay, well, all right. Yeah, it's kind of like Von yeah. These Hayes. are like multi-position type guy. Pete Rose isn't on this list, is he? Pete Rose is definitely on this list. There Pete, you go. Pete Rose right, late see? in his career. You, yeah, you, I forgot that he he not forgot so much, but he he didn't play first base until fairly late. He did a lot of third. He did yep. a lot of outfield. Yep. And then it was really when about, he got to the Phillies. Right, so starting about because Schmidt was at third base, he was at third base for the best years of the Big Red Machine, and then then Schmidt he get signed with the Phillies. Schmidt was at third, so he became a first baseman. Basically, just stayed there because he was old at that point. Right, exactly. All right, so I got second. one. He's I needed some clues. I kind of needed some clues, but I got one. All right, he was he was the guy who was definitely not in the Hall of Fame. Right, right, right. Could oh, I should have picked up on that, but isn't right. All right, eighth on the list is a Washington Senator, Joe Judge, who. Okay. Looks like Keith Hernandez, basically, or right, a very right. Keith Hernandez-y kind of player. Whitey Lockman was seventh. Vic Power, who mm. was closer to the Buckner kind of player that you were talking about. Right. Not a big on-base percentage guy, more of like a high-average singles guy in his best year. Kind of miscast as a leadoff hitter, but there he you was. You know, but he was, this was, Vic Power, of course, as we know, was victim of a lot of racism in yes, his career, was. particularly with the, you know, being a Yankee farmhand and being traded away from the Yankees because supposedly of his interest in white women, as it was at the time, you know, wound up with what, Kansas City and Cleveland. But he was a good defensive player. And now putting back into the mindset of management at the time, which treated him that way. I would not be surprised to find out they're like, oh, here's an athletic Latin guy. Let's put him at leadoff. <laughs> right, right. And those those triple A years, the the Yankees really got hoisted by their their own petard because people believed the bowl that they were handing out. Because as you'll recall, teams like the Yankees and subsequently the Red Sox, once integration happened, they would say, Oh, we're all for it. We are totally for it. It's just we can't find anybody. We've looked everywhere and there are no African-American players who are of a Yankee quality. So if only someone like that would present themselves, then it would be over just like that. So Vic Powers at AAA and hits like 330 with 20 home runs two years in a row. And everyone says he he seems to fit what you've been looking for. And then they trade him away just so they don't have to confront the issue. Kind of the bitter thing about that is that's the exact argument that Saturday Night Live was using what? five years ago for why they didn't have a african-american woman in their cast right they could just well gee if we could just find somebody who was really funny 
And of course, now they have Ego Wodum there, who is fantastic. And yes. Black Lady Sketch Show, I should point out, just got nominated for an Emmy yesterday morning. Fantastic show on HBO. If anybody has access to that, I highly recommend that. Come on, not being able to find a hilarious black woman is, I mean, it's ridiculous. But to, to hear the exact same argument being used in this decade different you know different yes. form of entertainment but these things that we think are way back then they said these terrible things yeah it's not really a long ago it's not and just to continue the analogy even though they do have ego wodum on there they sometimes struggle to find things for her to do or they don't give her things to do or she doesn't get things to do they're they're all kinds of that, that was sort of passive i feel voice. like they're doing better with her than they did with the previous uh person whose name i'm blanking on but yeah, the z they didn't yeah. give her a ton to do and I mean, she was fine, but she didn't necessarily distinguish herself. But Ego Wodum, I feel like, is in a lot of stuff, and she is fantastic. But similarly, there were a lot of teams in that first wave of integration, and even going all the way down to the Red Sox, who said, oh, we brought up a utility infielder and gave him three at-bats. We've integrated. Nominate <laughs> us for the NAACP Man of the Year Award. Right. You know, and it, it wasn't that. I mean, the, the Tigers didn't have a African-American or, or star of color in any sense player until Willie Horton, who didn't come like get established as a, as a regular until something like 1966 yeah. like that, even though they technically integrated before. So power number five is Eddie Waitkiss, the guy who got oh, shot. Sure. Okay. Four. And this is yet another guy in that, in that Keith Hernandez ish, exactly the kind of guy that you talked about, Mike Hargrove. Oh yeah. The human rain delay. Yeah, yeah, a lot of walks. Yep, yep. Should have known that one. I mean, I remember him better as a manager, but but I've got enough of his old baseball cards and, and know enough about his profile as a player. Yeah. Third is last week's guest, Rod Carew, who mostly hit second in his career, but every once in a while, primarily with the, the Angels, they would put him up there if whoever the regular leader Where did man, he you know. hit most? You say he hit second. When he was a second baseman with the Twins, was he primarily hitting second? Yes. Okay. He was a good choice for that, I think. I mean, he got on base a lot, but he also, he, he put the ball in play. So if there was a fast guy mm -hmm. on who could steal again on second, you knock him in with a double. Yeah, a lot so. of these guys are, are multi-position guys that I think, you know, I think of Carew as a second baseman. I think of Carpenter as a third baseman. I, I Rose, I managed to stumble on once we started naming these guys and I thought about that. But then the, I, uh, Erstad, I think of as a center fielder. So. I'm just making excuses for myself. Go on. <laughs> and number one, and this guy is, is totally obscure, but he was really good, was Lou Blue, mm. who was a switch hitting first baseman in the 20s and 30s with the Tigers and the Browns and teams like that. I don't think he ever came within a, a hundred miles of the postseason, but he hit 290 a year and, uh, and walked a hundred times a year and, and just was exactly who a leadoff man should be but of course as as we said at that time they they liked fast guys yep yep and now and then we bring it back to you know now we've got max muncie and uh i think the anthony rizzo thing was more of a because it hasn't have the cubs been leading off chris bryant do i have that right i'm currently writing for inside the dodgers and i'm living in new jersey so i very much have a kind of a coast and with the way they've separated the major leagues right now into the three geographic divisions effectively i really do have kind of a coastal view right now i i, I find myself whenever there's not a, a dodgers or a yankees game on that i have to remind myself if I'm looking at, because I often look at the pitching matchup, or if I'm catching a game midway, I'll say, well, which one's close? Which one looks like it's developing into an interesting game? But I have to remind myself, Central Division, Central Division, 
pick something from the Central Division. You know? <laughs> so yes, I had Indians White Sox on yesterday. I'm trying, but I haven't gotten around to the beyond you know checking the box scores. I haven't I haven't caught a Cubs game yet. In the five games that they've played as we are speaking, Bryant led off in four of the first five, actually, with Rizzo batting second. Mm -hmm. And then Rizzo led off the fifth game because Bryant was dealing with a shoulder strain, I believe. Right, right. So you you would think, I've said this a million times. Which is interesting, too. That's David Ross. This is David Ross beginning of his managerial career. So he's kind of putting out a little bit of a, showing us a little bit of of his interest in how he's going to put a lineup together. You know, this isn't Joe, if John Madden was doing that, you'd be like, okay, you know, Madden's always doing something interesting one way or the other, but it's 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 interesting to see David Ross, who I think we might have thought of as a, a more and, and this is way too early to make any real judgments about his managing, but the, obviously the first thing that you can judge is, and as you always say, the manager's first job is allotting playing time, the lineups that he assembles. So to see David Ross come right out of the gate with you know his kind of basically his two big hitters, which is no disrespect to Javi Baez, but his game is more all around with his right. two big hitters hitting one two, and and one of those guys leading off regardless of which it is now obviously Bryant is is he's not a big base dealer but he's an excellent base runner um but Rizzo is like you say first base typical power hitting first baseman I think he runs the base as well but he's slow to see him have those guys at the top of the order right off the bat makes it kind of like oh okay so maybe David Ross is gonna have some interesting progressive lineups and that's something to keep an eye on it seems like and and I noticed this too because you you are looking for sort of is he the antithesis to Joe Madden in terms of lineup stability. And I'm still not sure about that. But one of the things I've noticed is that Kyle Schwarber has been in there all five games, whether they're, they've only faced one lefty, but he's been in there. He didn't do well. Ian Happ seems to be playing more often. Mm-hmm. And he seems like he wants to have Victor Caratini in the lineup more regularly than Madden did. Now, whether that's just kind of his fetish or Caratini is worthy of that kind of playing time. I don't know. Well, he also has the advantage of having the DH so he can get an extra guy in there. Right. You know, which I mean, when when the whole announcement came down about the DH in the National League and I kind of went through the teams in the NL and I'm like, oh, Hap's going to play more. That was one of the things that kind of popped in. You know, a lot of people said, oh, they finally have a place to put Schwarber, but Schwarber's made himself a competent left fielder so it's not so much that they need to stash Schwarber as much as it makes room for one other guy and it always seemed to me like Ian Happ was going to be that one other guy now I think Happ's actually getting a fair amount of playing time in center Uh, yeah and Caratini's been drawing those DH at bats like I said I am checking the box scores (laughs) (laughs) you know so but but it is yeah it's it's it he has the ability to get an extra guy in the lineup whereas Madden would always have to take someone out to get those guys in Initially, I thought Nick Horner was on the bench after that nice showing, Nico, excuse me, in the fall. And then suddenly he started appearing and he's been in the last three games and he's hit. So I I hope I, I always root for the younger, better guy. So I'm hoping that he'll stay in there. Coming out of camp, it was in, kind of suggested it would be a job share at second base between Horner, who's right handed and and. The Jason Kipnis, who's left-handed, but Kipnis has been terrible for three years in a row. He may have made the team, and I think they had Kipnis DHing actually in the last game, uh, which won't be the last game by the time people are listening to this, but nonetheless. But it does seem like Horner is the preference for the everyday. They're giving him the chance to to run away with that job, which is exactly what they should be doing. Exactly. The one one last thing on the the leadoff men question and the the slow first base leadoff men are mostly slow. Mike Hargrove was really slow. <laughs> uh, Erstad, as you said, pretty pretty fast. Pete Rose, when he was young, anyway, decently fast. Carew, same thing. You would think, and, and this is something that we've talked about a lot of times, but I don't really get bored of talking about it, is that Wade Boggs did not 
change people's minds on this for forever. Wade Boggs Mm -hmm. made essentially three stolen base attempts a year usually, and he stole one or two out of those. Mm -hmm. He was very slow, but of course he got on base 45% of the time or something in a good year. And no one noticed, you know, over in the other league, they were still even a a manager as smart as Whitey Herzog, still Vince Coleman is his leadoff man. Mm -hmm. And we should have more of this. We should have more Max Muncy's up there or or Chris Bryant's up there. Absolutely. But there was, I want to say, it was probably close to 10 years ago or maybe even a little bit more now. There was one postseason, and this was when Alex Rodriguez was with the Yankees, Carlos Beltran possibly with the Mets at the time. When there were, oh, actually, go, yeah, 2004, I think, when, when, uh, Larry Walker was with the, with the Cardinals, when there was a move to have more powerful batters bat second. Cause the traditional, right. the traditional lineup, which I learned very well watching the 1980s Yankees with Ricky Henderson, Willie Randolph, Don Mattingly, and the, Willie Randolph wasn't necessarily batting second because he drew a lot of walks, even though he did. The idea of a guy, a fast guy first, a bat handler who can move him over second and then your best hitter third followed by your best power hitter and then kind of in descending order from there. That's the traditional baseball lineup. But I we started to see about a decade or a little more ago, decade and a half ago, more teams were putting a big bat second. And that, to some degree, I think has become, it's not standard, but it's more normal. Like Mike Trout is bad. Of course, Mike Trout's a fast guy, you know, an athletic type. But we're seeing more of those type of guys hitting second. And I don't think it really raises eyebrows very much. Josh Donaldson is a good example of a guy who has hit second a lot in his career. Again, a good base runner, but not necessarily a fast player. But, you know, with the kind of power he has, traditionally, he'd be a 4-5 hitter, maybe a 3 during his peak MVP contending seasons. But he's been very often a number 2 two hitter Mike Trout a number two hitter we're Aaron Judge Aaron Judge and another good example of a guy who's an excellent base runner but not necessarily fast it's the Chris Bryant very similar comparison in terms of like their value once they got on base that you know they're they're very good at taking the extra base they have decent speed for the type of power hitter they are but they're not going to steal bases for you but yeah but we're used to seeing those guys now bat second so then yeah then then kind of the next that final stage in the battle and of course you know the one thing about batting a big powerful bat lead off a max muncie type because max muncie is even though he gets on base a lot he's also one of the best power hitters on the dodgers is that you want those guys hitting with men on base because it's it's kind of like the inverse of the sacrifice bunt. You hit your your home run hitter first, and he hits a bunch of solo home runs. But you don't want you don't win games with solo home runs. You win them with multi run home runs. So you want those guys batting second or third, etc., so that they bat with men on base. Of course, the rest of the game they do bat with men on base. And if they get on base in the first place, you're 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 in a better situation. You get them more at bats. There's more. It's more likely on the flip side at the end of the game. The guys at the top of the order are the ones who come up again if you can extend the lineup in the eighth or ninth inning. And those are the guys you want to have, you know, you don't want to have to wait through your good bunter bat handler, Ozzie Gian type guy, <laughs> you know, to get to those guys. You want them right as soon as that lineup flips over. You want, boom, Max Muncy, Aaron Judge, Mike Trey, you know, whoever. You want those guys coming right. up. And so that's the logic of it. But it does on some level, I, I can still see a little bit of resistance in the sense that you're kind of not throwing away one of their at-bats, but kind of, you know, they're going to hit with the bases empty. It's that kind of idea of whether it's David Ortiz or, or Barry Bonds or whoever the big, you know, right now Christian Yelich or, or, or Bellinger. 
or Aaron Judge or Giancarlo Stanton is that, you know, the other team wants to face them with the bases empty. If you get the big bopper up with the bases empty, that's almost a win for the opposing team. And so to lead that guy off kind of gives them the win in that first at bat. So, so I can still see why there's some resistance, but at the same time, like you say, you would put, it's distributing playing time, get your best batters up towards the top, get your on base guys and, you know, for a lot of the teams that we're talking about, have another guy, and you know whether it's of course Anthony Rendon's hurt right now, but or you know obviously the, the Yankees and Dodgers lineups are super deep, but there's another guy in there who can drive that on base high quality batter in that first time around. So it, there's still a little bit of an I can see why like a much like ninety percent commitment to to the idea of batting your best, you know one of your big boppers first. And those 1980s Red Sox, by the way, and Ralph Halk, terrible ex's nose manager. But led off Wade Boggs and batted Dwight Evans mm-hmm. second. So mm-hmm. you had 330 with 100 walks, followed by 280 with 30 home runs with 100 walks. And that allowed Jim Rice to set a record for grounding into double plays. But it was because <laughs> they were both slow. But it also, right. but again, Boggs is like the perfect guy because he's a ridiculous on base guy, but he's not, he was not a home run threat. You know, he, he hit uh, 20 home runs once. It was uh, was that in eighty seven, right? They, yeah, yeah. And in, in the rabbit ball year, but otherwise, so so he's not. And of course, he's going to hit a million doubles, but which will drive guys in. But better to just have him hit the double and stand on second base and, and let Evans and Rice bat him in. But you don't have to worry about that idea of this guy's going to hit thirty to forty home runs, and we're going to now we're going to make a quarter of them guaranteed no better than solo shots because he's leading off games with no one on base. Each time I see a crowd of people Just like a fool I stop and stare I know it's not the proper thing to do But maybe you'll be there Maybe you'll be there, you know, like base runners when the big bopper comes up. Not the big bopper who was a DJ with that flu kit, who was on the plane with Buddy Hot. Never mind. You know what I mean. This recording of the 1948 song was released in 1954. The vocalist is Kay Starr, who had a long career in almost every genre that you can think of sans opera. Some of her biggest hits were actually in country after changing tastes in pop music, we've often discussed this, caused her to shift over to that side of the Opry. This song has been recorded many times. It's kind of a minor standard among the versions that you can find is a good one by June Christie, Frank Sinatra on his Mordant 1957 album, Where Are You?, And most recently, there is a very good version by Bob Dylan on his 2016 Standards album, Fallen Angels. It seems very lived in. And of course, this gives me an opportunity to promote one more time, Everything is Broken, the Dylan podcast I'm doing with Mike Farron and Craig Calcaterra, two of the swellest guys on earth. Wouldn't you want to hang out with them even if you didn't happen to have the Dylan fixation that we do. I am fixated on taking a break. Notice how I do that at no time. Do my fingers leave my hands, but I will leave the podcast for just a moment, but I will return on the other side to resume my conversation with Cliff Corcoran. Catch you then. 
As a small business owner, you're reimagining the way you work. From rethinking your bandwidth to reassessing your voice solutions, you're changing the way you do business. And at Cox Business, so are we. Our flexible internet and voice packages give you the solutions you need to get back to business. Rethink, reconnect, reimagine. Get 25 megs of internet and IPC select for only $74 per month for six months. No annual contract required. And 831.20. Restrictions apply. Visit coxbusiness.com for details. All services subject to Cox Business general terms. As a small business owner, you're reimagining the way you work. From rethinking your bandwidth to reassessing your voice solutions, you're changing the way you do business. And at Cox Business, so are we. Our flexible internet and voice packages give you the solutions you need to get back to business. Rethink, reconnect, reimagine. Get 25 megs of internet and IPC select for only $74 per month for six months. No annual contract required. And 831.20. Restrictions apply. Visit coxbusiness.com for details. All services subject to Cox Business general terms. So we're half an hour in and we're still on the first topic. <laughs> Seriously, it's been a half but, an hour? Almost, but it's not a bad thing. We must, I, mean, I must be so lonely. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is what, that sums up this era very, very well. But it's not a bad thing because, look, we're going to have to address the the Marlins and the, the Phillies and all that mm. eventually. Mm. But to the point that this came up and it was inevitable that it was going to come up, we had and, and still have for the time being, baseball again. And so these are kind of the fun things that we haven't really been able to think about mm. going back to, to last fall. So so it's good. Let's let's do one more kind of, <laughs> of frivolous one. And this is all, also sort of a, a trivia question for which I have unearned knowledge because I'm reading a book on the Brewers for, for the show. That's fine. And I, just I, can't, came I can't imagine this. I can do much worse. No. Well, th- this Hit is- Hit me, this Steven. Is, yeah, this is is less of a statistical question, but this is is in your wheelhouse because back in February for the Athletic, you reviewed or commented on all thirty mm-hmm. major league uniforms for for the Athletic, and you panned the new Brewers alternate road jerseys, yes. which I kind of like with the blue script Milwaukee. I don't know why I do. I feel like it has a nice glow to it, like it's almost a neon yellow. My, my issue with it, this is a, this is for people who haven't seen them. It's a, it's a all. Navy, their color they've gone with is kind of it's a little lighter than your standard like Yankees or Red Sox navy, but it's darker than the traditional kind of royal blue that the that the Brewers wore in the eighties. So it's that kind of deep blue, I guess I'll call it, with the yellow. A lot, a lot of times in uniforms they call it gold, but to me it's just yellow. Milwaukee with a uh, a placket piping down the front and no border on the yellow, so it's just yellow on the blue with no outline of any kind, which generally I like an absence of excessive outlines or drop shadows or anything. But the reason I panned that particular jersey in my review is that to me, it just looks like it looks like something the University of Michigan or somebody. <laughs> it just looks like a college jersey to me. For whatever reason, it just doesn't look like a major league jersey. It looks like a, like I say, like a college or even a high school jersey. That was I just aesthetically, for whatever reason, just didn't work for me. Do you have the the perceptual problem that a lot of people have? I, I'm sure we've discussed this before, but you know they have the the uh, glove cap back now, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and some people see that as a glove, mm-hmm. and some people see it's not MB, it's BM. Unfortunately, <laughs> it is. I went years before I could make out the letters. All I saw was the mitt, and if you Google around on this, there are just constantly people mm-hmm. over the years going, oh, 
I didn't real. They see one but not the other. It's one of my favorite baseball things. It's kind of it's it springs eternal, and the fact that they brought the logo back full time means it will continue to do so. That if <laughs> you it almost and and this is true for people who it doesn't matter how long you, they've followed baseball. There's always somebody who today was the day they learned that there's an M and a B in the in the Brewers ball and glove <laughs> logo. It's fantastic. I I my dad pointed it out to me very early in my baseball fandom. I was collecting baseball cards. And I think this was around the time if i remember this correctly this is 1987 and that was the year of paul molitor's 36 game hitting streak and so i'm collecting the wood grain tops baseball cards and my dad says hey do you have that guy who's got that hitting streak going on and i'm you know just just really <laughs> not really deep into the game and just trying to like i'm getting through you know watching like mets and yankee games on tv and and collecting baseball cards i'm like i don't know so i go through and he's like that's him that's him paul molitor and i'm like oh cool i have a guy who's doing a thing and he says hey do you ever notice how that logo's an m and a b and i said what you know and of course i was 11 at the time so it was it was it wasn't a shock that i didn't know and i was still learning things about the game at that point so i didn't necessarily i think if he hadn't pointed it out it might have been many many years before i eventually did but i love i was i was stunned at the time and and it's to see you know grown adults who've been following the game for a long time it's constant it's constant you can always find somebody or any if you just bring it up i guarantee you there's somebody listening to this podcast who said huh and went and googled it and looked at it, and they are their mind is blown right now. That's it's one of the greatest logos of all time for that reason. I had the same issue. I, I hear this discussed less, and maybe this is because they're not around anymore. But I feel like it was three quarters of my life to date before I saw an M in the Expos cap. I saw E L B. That's funny. I did not see M. I saw the individual. I, that one I always saw the M right away, but I couldn't figure out why it was so weird looking. Right. You know, I'm like, why is their M so strange? And then people say, well, there's these other letters in it, or maybe they're not. And the thing about the Expos logo is that nobody can seem to agree what is in, going on there. Because some people, <laughs> some people say it just stands for, you know, Montreal Expos baseball, or the French rearrangement of those words, or, but then there's other people who argue that it was, you know, the original owner's initials or his daughter's initials. But I think the, the best, most reputable version I've found is that it's just supposed to be, either Montreal Expos baseball or whatever it is in French where essentially the words are just in different order, but they start with the same letters. So that's all you're supposed to see. But yeah, I was always, I didn't know if it was supposed to be an E or a C or a, is that really a B or just a weird shape? It was just, to me, it was just kind of <laughs> like this weird, very seventies M. So I always saw the M. I didn't realize there was, there was like a conspiracy theory attached to it. It's almost like the, the infamous, Nordstrom's chocolate cookie recipe or the Procter and Gamble having satanic symbols hidden in their logo where companies end up spending, I don't know yeah. if it's millions, but time and money trying to defend against these completely mythical things. I think what it speaks to is that it, as much as it's become an iconic logo and, it, and it's cool looking in the sense that you've got this kind of red swirl and this kind of negative space left hand side to the thing and this weird bubbly bee thing and and it's very of its time and its era which that they expose with their pinwheel cap and just the expos themselves no longer existing it's all so much of its time and place and evocative in that way and so it's very effective in that way but whatever it was they were trying to communicate with hiding these other letters 
the complete it just it was poorly designed on that level it just doesn't work as as, as a franchise was poorly designed. yeah yeah as as opposed to as opposed to the brewers logo or the hartford whalers logo or these other ones that are just kind of you know these brilliant things that the expos is just kind of a, a muddled hodgepodge we we love it kind of the same way we love other mistakes that have been <laughs> made, you know, kind of, you know, we have a, now everybody thinks that Lestade Olympique is fantastic, you know, but it's a terrible place for baseball. And it's, it's, it's that kind of thing. There's a, there's an affection that's largely nostalgia, I think for the, for the Expos logo. So the sort of trivia question I, I had here, and again, this is, is something I just have came across just because I have to, not have to, but have chosen to read this book. Do you know why the Milwaukee oh, Brewers colors are blue and Yes, gold? I do, because the Milwaukee Brewers were okay. the Seattle Pilots. The Seattle Pilots were blue and the identical sort of blue and gold that were from that the traditionally, you know, the kind of Hank Aaron, Robin Yun years of the Brewers, the exact same shades of blue and yellow. The C- Seattle Pilots were part of the 1990, sorry, the 1969 expansion but they went bankrupt before the beginning of the right. 1970 season. And Bud Selig helped move them to Milwaukee effectively at the end of spring training. So they shipped, they, at the end of spring right. training, they didn't know if they were going to Seattle or Milwaukee. They eventually figured out they were going to Milwaukee and they were going to be renamed the Brewers. So they basically just, somebody got out, you know, a, a bunch of seam rippers, ripped off the pilot's logos, stitched on some, and, and in some cases they, they used the same fonts. The first couple years of the Brewers uniforms, it's the same font that says Milwaukee and that says Brewers as said Seattle and said Pilots. And they have the same sleeve striping because the the old Seattle uniforms, which aren't aren't always that easy to find because (laughs) because it was an expansion team and Seattle was late in developing their own uniforms. You can find a lot of pictures of, of spring training 1969 Pilots wearing kind of generic Pilots uniforms. It's just blue pilots across the front with no stripes or anything like that the actual uniforms once they got into the season had kind of pilot stripes gold thin gold stripes around the sleeves and their little ship's wheel with wings logo on the on the chest and all these other things that made it more piloty um those pilot stripes persisted (laughs) on the brewers uniforms for two years before they did a proper redesign and came up with what were kind of i get people think of as the hank aaron look with the with the broader stripes so yeah so the the uh the reason that that color scheme is in place is because they just had they were basically wearing pilots uniforms and what's even more interesting to me is then when as part of that deal baseball agreed to expand into seattle bolted after a year and then there was a lawsuit that resulted in the creation of the Mariners seven years later. When the Mariners were right. created, they had the exact same color scheme as well, which they've recently gone back to in an alternate where they're, they're using their current look, but with that old blue and gold color scheme. So in terms of uniforms and, and color designs, the pilots who only existed for one year and were terrible, heavily influenced the look of both the Brewers and the Mariners. So I couldn't have said it any better myself. The only detail that I would add, they're kind of kind of passive voice on your part when you say Bud Selig helped. He stole. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's that's the one that's the, that I fudged that detail on purpose because I don't have it, I don't have it completely square in my brain. But you, since you've got it, go for it. Well, no, I, I mean that wasn't really the part I was going to dwell on, and maybe stole is too harsh. I mean he took advantage of of a situation and did then back the American League into a corner because they they got sued for 
for taking the team out out of the out of town peremptorily, but the colors that he wanted and would have preferred and somehow just never got around to maybe out of inertia once as you described they went through this this process of adding the blue and gold he was a Milwaukee right. Brewers fan the American Association Milwaukee Brewers and they were blue and red they had a predominantly they had a, a sort of a, a blocky mm-hmm. blue m with a red outline around it and then a red m on the caps that's what he. I'm would glad have that they haven't. You know, and the and the Brewers have changed their colors a little bit over the years. In the '90s, they went to this kind of odd green and gold, with a kind of sea foamy and a darker blue that didn't work very well. And then they replaced that with the 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 look they just got rid of, which was the kind of the stock of wheat, which made them look like a Miller Beer, you know, company tied into Miller Park very nicely. And that was with a more of a metallic gold and a, and a more of a, d- a deeper blue. And now they've come back to the original ball and glove, but kept kind of the deeper blue and gold. But there's plenty of blue and red teams in baseball. I think I love the fact that the Padres have but not just brought back the brown, but brought back the yellow. I think there should be more yellow on the baseball field. I think it works so well for the A's, for the Padres. The Rays use it a little bit. They could stand to use it a little bit more. It's not really an official Cardinals color, but it's nice to have it on the bat there. And the Brewers to have a good, proper... I just think it's a really nice highlight color, and, and I'm glad it's there. But in, in terms of getting back to Selig, you know, what's fascinating to me, and I don't always remember to think of it this way, is that all of, not all of the moves in baseball, but most of the expansion, there's always a backstory to it. We always, you know, when learning about, and again, going back to that 11-year-old kid who was collecting Paul Molitor cards or whatever, one of the first things I wanted to learn is like, wait, what happened to the Browns? What happened to the Senators? Where did these te- Why? What, what's the Milwaukee Braves? What's that? You know, and learning about franchise movement and expansion. But of course, then as you get older, you study these things and you realize, okay, you, you learn the story of the pilots moving to Milwaukee. And then you realize, wait, there's further history to that because the reason that Bud Selig was trying to get a team in Milwaukee was because he was a Milwaukee Braves fan. The Braves left and there's that. And then the, the Mariners were created because the pilots went away. So Selig gets the pilots to replace the Braves and then Seattle sues to replace the pilots and you get the Mariners and, and all these other kind of things. And, and just the other day on a broadcast I was watching, they were celebrating the, the announcement of the Continental League in 1959. And if you go and look at the proposed with the Continental Continental League was supposed to be basically like the Federal League of the 1960s and never got off the ground. But if you look at the cities they were going to expand into or or cre- create teams for it wasn't expanding because they were creating a team from scratch. Every one of them except for Buffalo have since received either a relocated or expanded major league franchise. And of course, Buffalo for a few weeks this year, <laughs> if, if we get there, they're going to have the Blue Jays. But uh, so, so, you know, there's all this kind of, th- there's a history to everything. And then subsequent sub- expansions were, I think you mentioned in a, in a re- recent podcast, you know, the 1993 expansion or maybe even 1998 expansion as well, were helped to go pay for the lawsuits over collusion. I was just blanking on the word <laughs> uh, over collusion. You know, there's all this, everything has a much longer history to it. It didn't just happen. There, there's always something, you know, five, 10, 20 years before that, that prompted it. To, so that's, that's one of the you know, just interesting things about reading books and learning about history, Stephen. I think everything is contingent. You know, as you were saying that I was thinking of managers who like, you know, Casey Stengel liked to platoon, but actually 
Casey Stengel liked to have Mickey Mantle in center field. And if you just gave him nine more guys like that, he wouldn't have platooned anybody. And I know that's a ridiculous standard, but that's really the whole point. You only do what you have to do. And sort of similarly, for some reason, I was thinking of Dunkirk, you know, which, you know, the British, you know, they're backed up against the beach and they rescue the the soldiers with this amazing flotilla of of ships and and Winston Churchill gives this great speech about you know how this was a, a defeat we can't look at this as a victory wars are not won by evacuations and probably we're going to be invaded but we will fight them on the beaches and we will fight them in the streets and then he put a lot of those guys <laughs> back in France yeah. and they had to do it all over again he messed up really really badly because he couldn't accept that at that moment France was done and so it's it's um, really we streamline stories so that they're they're right. kind of quick and linear and and they fall together in a way that that seems to be then this happened and then this happened and then right and we give them beginnings and endings when everything spirals off in both directions further and further you can you you can trade one I was writing about I forget oh I was writing about it might have been the super boss I wrote something uh, before the season started about the the 1899-1900 Brooklyn Super Boss, a brief super team formed out of the ashes of the Baltimore Orioles when Wait, we you're had... you're saying uh, Super... I thought you were saying Super Boss. I think it's Super... Oh, sorry. Super Superbas. <laughs> I know. I, it's one of those things with being a writer where you say things wrong to right. type them right. The Superbas, right. Because it was superb. Superba was the, the Donlin brothers. Can, can, of, I, can uh, I just interrupt to say that we, we got... This yeah. is seriously something that's, that's bugging me. At, at my age... I joke a lot about incipient senility, and you do find sometimes that your processing is not as quick as it was when you were twenty. Unfortunately, you know you're not. Yeah, don't say. Yeah, it's you're <laughs> you're not as wise maybe at twenty, but you're definitely faster. This is one of the things where, like, you know, just to, to be political for half a second, the Republicans say, "Oh, Joe Biden's senile. He's not senile. He's old," but. He's he's clearly when you hear him talk he he can put stuff together it's just that first of all he has a stutter which he mm-hmm. he fights very hard but second of all it just takes him a little bit longer to sort the words in the right order which for uh, I get and as as and I'm not 75 you know I'm I'm much younger than that but I still sometimes it's hard and this is just a weird mental thing that I've noticed lately and is totally silly but I I literally have been lying in bed at night saying these words to myself we got a catalog from this main purveyor of things like snacks and, and jellies and things like that. And I was flipping through the catalog because although I'm not like a big bread and jam and cheese guy, my wife and my daughter are. And I was just sort of looking forward, looking through it and saying, oh, you would like this. You would like that. They have right. this kind of obscure jam and that kind of obscure jam. And they have, and I'm going to say it very carefully so I get it right. They they have a bottle of sour cherry jelly if i do not stop and think that what comes out of my mouth is sour jelly jello or something like that and when sour cherry jello i so sour jelly sour Sour cherry cherry jelly sour sour (laughs) cherry jelly right but i can't sour cherry jelly sour sour cherry jelly that's a tough one yeah it's like toy boat Toy boat, yes, toy boat, toy I, boat. when I I feel gears grinding in <laughs> my brain jelly. when I try yeah. to say it. And seriously, jelly. I the, it was kind of a scary moment. It, it was like those old episodes of Happy Days where the Fonz can't say the word wrong. I was wrong. <laughs> I, I was wrong. I was And I was trying to say, hey, Steph, they have sour cello. God, sour <laughs> cello. 
and and by the way, I yeah. didn't do that on purpose just now. So I believe you. <laughs> anyway, I have no idea where we were, but just Don't worry just about to, it. just to procrastinate one more time on on mm. the on the the viral thing. We have had five games. We've talked about some aspects of it. Are there things that you've enjoyed thus far in the tiny one twelfth of the season that we've had to date? Every morning, every evening, ain't we got fun? Not much money, oh, but honey, ain't we got fun? This one's a real chestnut, goes back to 1920, Ain't We Got Fun. Music by Richard Whiting, lyrics by Gus Kahn and Raymond Egan, and performed by Whiting's daughter, Margaret, along with special guest Bob Hope, who was a multiple threat in a lot of different ways. He was a threat to some of the girls on his programs, I'll say that. Anyway, there's a baseball connection here, just a small one. The first successful recording of this song was done by the duo Van and Shank, who are forgotten today. They're kind of fun, although they did a lot of sort of racist material. We would consider it racist today. Novelty songs with fake accents. But in the early days of sound musicals on film, they did a baseball picture. They were known as the Battery of Song, Pitching and Catching. Don't read anything into that. It wasn't like that. Anyway, it was called They Learned About Women. It's from 1930, and it's kind of entertaining. I wrote it up for Baseball Prospectus with still photos if you want to check it out but don't you check out because this is not the end it is only a break although they learned about women was the end for van and shank because one of them dropped dead immediately thereafter put that thought out of your mind you need to hear cliff's answer to my question and we'll get it right after this but he'll have such fun as a small business owner you're reimagining the way you work from rethinking your bandwidth to reassessing your voice solutions. You're changing the way you do business. And at Cox Business, so are we. Our flexible internet and voice packages give you the solutions you need to get back to business. Rethink, reconnect, reimagine. Get 25 megs of internet and IPC select for only $74 per month for six months. No annual contract required. And 831.20. Restrictions apply. Visit coxbusiness.com for details. All services subject to Cox Business general terms. As a small business owner, you're reimagining the way you work. From rethinking your bandwidth to reassessing your voice solutions, you're changing the way you do business. And at Cox Business, so are we. Our flexible internet and voice packages give you the solutions you need to get back to business. Rethink, reconnect, reimagine. Get 25 megs of internet and IPC select for only $74 per month for six months. No annual contract required. And 831.20. Restrictions apply. Visit coxbusiness.com for details. All services subject to Cox Business general terms. We're almost at ten percent. By the time people listening to this, we're going to be past ten percent of the season. You can't, you can't talk. I can't talk about the season generally without involving the virus. This season should be not happening. Well, yeah. I think we were both against it happening. Yes. But I can't not love having baseball games to watch. You know, I just like I'm so happy. I watched. I think I watched seven games in the first three days. I'm just so happy to have baseball games to watch. As much as I don't think they should be happening, and, and I, I've had conversations with my daughter, who, like I say, you know, she wants a a, a baseball theme mask, and she's happy to she's 
getting more and more of a baseball because she's 11 now. She's at that age when I was doing those things and she's getting baseball cards for Christmas and stuff. And we just, we, we, I, I said something about, you know, this happened in the game. She's like, oh, in the, in the games that aren't supposed to be happening. I'm like, yes, that's right. That's right. Then, but we say that and then we move on and talk about what happened in the game. You know, her favorite player, DD Gregorius hit in the first two games. I, I'm just happy to, to have, I just love baseball. I love seeing the unscripted things happen in a baseball context. I mean, I can't think of the season as a whole without thinking of the negative things, the outbreak and the pitching injuries, which, you know, we don't know if those are the result of insufficient warm-up time or what. But, you know, I in the empty stands, actually, you know, the cardboard cutouts, which are kind of a fun lark, I find really make a big difference. I was in one of the radio spots that I do. Somebody asked me about, you know, what, but this is before the season started. What do you think about this crowd noise stuff? And, you know, I watched some of the games in Korea when they started and they had the crowd noise. And I found that just that dull kind of background murmur and roar of the, of the crowd really made a difference in it, maybe not in the stadium, but from a television viewing perspective to normalize everything, to make it, you kind of almost forget there's nobody there until you see a certain shot of the stands and you're like, where is everybody? And so I was in favor of the crowd noise for that reason. And then, like I say, I've been watching a lot of Dodgers games. The Dodgers have the cutouts behind home plate. There's some other places, the, the Dodgers went to Houston and there they have them only in the out, in home run territory in the outfield, which is kind of odd. But when there's all those cutouts behind home, even though there's, you know, there's still flat images, it makes the difference. It it makes it seem like it reminds you that there are people watching this, even if they're not there. And and, and it's, I don't know. It, it's also very comforting for me to watch a Dodgers home game and see Mary Hart behind home plate for whatever reason. She's always in that exact same spot. And she's got a cardboard cutout in the same spot. But when they went over to Houston and the seats were just completely empty behind home, or watching the you know the Yankees Nationals games where all you get is just row upon row of of Delta signage. It really makes a difference to have those cardboard cutouts behind home. I, I find that's a real positive for me as as just for the viewing experience uh, of not <laughs> making it feel quite as dystopian. Uh, which I'm sure you saw the shot from the uh, one of the Oakland mm-hmm. A's games of the outfield corner, which was populated by a combination of teddy bears <laughs> and a cutout of Ty Cobb, Al Simmons, and Tris Speaker. And speaking of uniforms. You know how much I love the wonderful white elephant logo. Yep. That's the jersey that they were wearing. Yeah, yeah, I did see that. Yeah, the, the, in o- Oakland's one of the best places for the cutouts because they've got such an interesting combination. They, they've they've got a young Sal Bando in the in the vest years behind home, and they've got yeah they've got stuffed animals, stuffed elephants, stuffed bears. <laughs> There's a great a great shot of I think it was somebody <laughs> on the Angels making a catch in foul territory, and, and this is what I'm sure you're referring to in front of that. That that triptych cutout of those three nineteen what nineteen twenty nine athletics and a bunch of stuffed animals. Yes. <laughs> you know, twenty twenty baseball is deeply weird, <laughs> and it is. But but it's just how much better is that than empty seats, right? It's so much better than empty seats. It it is. And for people who don't know, by the way, one of the reasons. I mean, I just love elephants. I love animals. We both do. But for for people who don't know, 
that is one of the great kind of taking an insult and turning Mm -hmm. it to your advantage stories in baseball history. And it goes back to one of the first World Series where the A's and the Giants were going to play, and John McGraw called the A's a bunch of white elephants. And Connie Mack said, white elephants? Okay. I, and suddenly everything about the A's was white elephants, and they have the, the white elephant caps and the, the mm-hmm. white elephant jerseys. They still have a, an elephant patch uh, that they wear on their shoulders. You can find old pictures of Connie Mack at his desk with white elephant statues all around him. It's just the most awesome, like, I am glue. I'm not rubber. You're not glue. I'm the glue. This is mine. I own it now. And they got away from that during the Charlie Finley years. Right. They, they they had the elephants on their sleeves when they first got to Kansas City and they were wearing blue and red. And then when Finley bought the team and switched them over to the green and gold, the elephant went away for a little while. But they brought it back in the late 80s when they got rid of the, you know, Finley got sold the team in what, like 80 or 80, the very, very early 80s. Right. Uh, they went through a couple different ownerships. But then in the late 80s, when they went back to more of a traditional white home road gray and that bash brothers look that's when they brought that elephant on the baseball patch back and it's been it's been there ever since and yeah it's fantastic and, th- and that is you know their mascot is an elephant that is that because what is an athletic anyway <laughs> and it, it's it's an elephant you know it, it, a white elephant i guess is supposed to be an expensive mistake i'm not quite sure i guess that connie mack had become a it, what part owner or half owner of the team at this is what 1905 i think somewhere around there and and i guess he was saying that mack made a mistake by buying into this american you know franchise in this this upstart league that wasn't any good you know the, the rivalry between the uh, american league and national league was was extremely strong at the time because the national league had finally had the thing to itself and the american league came along and and mcgraw was actually supposed to be part of the uh baltimore franchise in the american league he was yeah and it didn't quite work out and so he was even more bitter and refused to play the Red Sox in the 04 series. So there was no 04 series. And yeah, and then Connie Mack just ran with it. It's, it's, yeah, it's fantastic. Is that this is what you think? Well, I'll embrace it and make it a positive. It's, 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 I think it's a great example. I've never asked myself that question. What is an athletic? It's really an adjective. And if you, you think about it, you can have a definition for most team names. We were talking about brewers. We know what a brewer is. We know what a pirate is. Mm-hmm. But what's an athletic? And actually, similarly, if you, if you ask the question legitimately, like, what's a Yankee? You can there there are definitions of that that we know now, but when you start going into the etymology of the word, no one knows exactly what it, right. it, it it didn't start out referring to something. It's just sort of been retroactively adjusted to mean what it means. Yeah, I, I wrote a piece on team nicknames for the Hardball Times a few years ago. I think it's called "What's in a Name" or something like that, or maybe that's what I called it when I link to it from my own blog or something i went back to 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 just kind of like categorize them all and yeah there's a lot of tigers and cubs and things like that are obvious it's it's fun to look back and find out where those names came from the trolley dodgers and that kind of thing like why the cubs for chicago or why you know it's kind of the utah jazz and, and los angeles lakers kind of thing baseball doesn't have things that are quite that entertaining where they had a, such a place specific nickname and then relocated to somewhere where it made no damn sense at all we don't have that but but why this and why that you know uh the cardinals are the cardinals because they stopped wearing brown and started wearing red and a lot of the american league nicknames just took the 1890s nicknames from the national 
National League teams, which kind of lent them a sort of, you know, the Red Sox, well, the Boston Red Stockings were what the Braves were in the 1890s when they were one of the best teams in the National League. And the, the St. Louis Browns is what the Cardinals were in the 1890s or in the American Association when they were one of the best teams or in 1880s, one of the best teams back then. You know, a lot of those nicknames jumped over, jumped leagues. But the, the Philadelphia Athletics goes back to the athletic baseball club, you know, the original pre-professional baseball teams were athletic clubs and it just happened to be that they were the philadelphia athletic club and they became the philadelphia athletics but that was a nickname that was in place you know the 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 modern philadelphia kansas city oakland days didn't pop up until 1901 that nickname was in use in the the 1860s but i think the hardest one is what's a philly because it's not a horse because it starts with a ph you know so it's it's and it's really just it, it you know, the Yankees are the Yankees because they were the American League team from New York. So they were Yank was just a nickname for Americans. Right. You know, when Phillies is just they're people from Philadelphia. <laughs> it's like that. It's all it is. There's nothing more there. But, you know, baseball has it's it's I think it's unique among the major North American team sports in having nicknames that are so antiquated that they have no meaning. <laughs> The one thing I learned so much on this show, but the one thing that I am having trouble learning this year, and I'm, I'm sure you've had this problem too. I, I know you study the rosters obsessively as mm-hmm. I do, but I cannot master ten relievers a team. I just can't. And oh, I mean, wow. we, I think we both live in fear 12. of being. Several teams have twelve. Yeah, right now. And and I, I'm sure, as I was about to say, I'm sure that that we both live in fear of being asked to do some radio spot and some host for for one city or another asks us about the the 15th reliever on on some team yeah how about Aaron Loop yeah. Aaron Loop's looking pretty good and I where's Aaron Loop again oh yeah Tampa yeah, okay yeah if, if it makes you feel any better I was in the um the MLB network makeup room once I, I don't remember which of the ex-players there were two or three of them then and at the time I think it was the A's who had the the name the no name bullpen? So this was probably five plus years ago, but they, but they they were just like you know these are two guys and of course they're the ex players so they're not they have their own bona fides they don't have to know everything the way we do, but they, they were like name more than two guys in the Oakland bullpen and they're just like blank faces around the room you know the, the Houston Astros had on on Tuesday night in the opening game against the Dodgers had I think two relievers make their major league debuts. In the what fourth fifth game of the season? I mean that that speaks to the degree to which there are guys missing from rosters, whether it's because of pitching injuries. The uh, the Astros in particular, not only Verlander but Brad Peacock's out hurt, Jose Urquidy's out hurt, or actually no, he might be a late COVID arrival. They haven't officially said Peacock's officially hurt. I think Pruitt is officially hurt. Austin Pruitt, who they picked up, although you wouldn't. That's that's a hard one to remember. And there's a few other guys. So the so the the Astros bullpen is filled with guys like Blake Taylor, Brandon Bailey, Enoli Paredes, Brandon Bielak. And one guy Nevo- literally named Scrub. I mean, you can't be yes. more on the nose than that. Andre Scrub. I know. <laughs> I'm has there, there's been a scrub before, right? Hasn't there um there's Johnny Grubb. Yes. I don't know if there's ever been a scrub. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, there've been lots of scrubs, but <laughs> especially as baseball, any baseball collector would tell you scrub, scrub, scrub. Oh, cool. Right. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, so it's, it's really, that's one of the things about this, this season in the early going that's, that's so bizarre. Now beyond the missing fans, beyond the persistent threat and the now developing outbreak 
et cetera, et cetera, is just the fact that there are a lot of guys missing. Yes. You know, just, just for whatever reason, Jordan Alvarez, another guy, rookie of the year last year, just not there, you know, and they never really told us why. He got late to camp, probably because of some COVID concerns. In the case of Alvarez, it could have been a visa issue because some guys have had that. It's just guys are kind of mysteriously not there. And it's, and it's happening throughout the sport in a weird way. You can't, the, the injuries happen, that always happens, but these two things on top of each other have, so we have expanded rosters, but reduced familiar names. So you've got, out of the, what, the normal 25 guys you might expect to be on a roster, you might get 19 of them who are actually there, but then you've got another five guys who wouldn't have been there. So now you've got maybe a dozen guys on every roster who are just like, who are these guys? Where, where'd they come from? Why are they here? It's good opportunity for those players. And I don't, I don't, I don't begrudge them that at all, but it's, it's a little odd. It's not, it's one of the, I heard you mention, I think it was last week's podcast or two weeks ago that I said, you know, this is an exhibition season. And you said, well, aren't they all exhibition season? <laughs> and I absolutely thought of that when I, when I sent that tweet out, but it is the idea that what I meant by that is that I think even in future seasons, I'm have, will have difficulty looking back at this season as part of the ongoing narrative in terms of players' careers and teams' year-in and year-out development. I mean, it's certainly a part of baseball history. As you always say with regard to the Hall of Fame, you know, the stories are the stories, and it doesn't matter whether or not you have a plaque. And I feel like this is that kind of season where it's like, it's it's a story. It's absolutely part of the story of baseball, but I'm not giving this season a plaque in the Hall. This is, this, this to me, effectively doesn't count. I would actually not be the slightest bit upset if they just said, none of the things that happened in the season don't <laughs> count towards these players' career statistics. I wouldn't care if that hurt, you know, Mike Trout's chase for whatever it is, 700 or 4,000 or whatever. I wouldn't care because I just don't think that the season should really count. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm not even glad. I can't say I'm glad it's happening because it's such a, a, <laughs> a public health risk. I'm glad the games are there for me to watch as guilty legit this is the one legitimately guilty pleasure i think because you know i don't really believe in guilty pleasures but this is definitely one but i i just don't i don't feel like it should really count for anything it, that it, it really isn't an, an exhibition it's like the world baseball classic where it's like it's fun to watch and somebody's gonna win but it doesn't carry over into anything it's, it's definitely in pardon the expression a bubble of its own and it will be sealed off and and we and others have spent a lot of time talking about the legitimacy quote unquote of this season mm -hmm. And it just doesn't apply. It's just its own thing. And right. a, a while back, I don't know if you recall this, but you and I were talking about various television shows. And I said, I like The Good Place. And you said, watch Park and Rec, which I've, I've never mm -hmm. done. And what everyone says about that show is skip the first season. Or I right. might tell you, Star Trek, the original series, skip the third season. There's not a lot of value mm -hmm. in there. Skip the fourth season of the original Twilight Zone. That's the one where they went to an hour and a lot of the episodes right. were padded out and, and not that successful. Like maybe maybe this is the one you skip. And, and by the way, talking it, about- It's Rocky Five. What's that? <laughs> Rocky Five. Rocky Five. Right. Yeah. Don't. Yeah. Exactly. Just skip it. Yeah. Just don't. You don't need, you don't yeah. need to know. It's not. Right. It's it's not going to. I've, I've done this with my daughter with the pre with the Star Wars prequels. <laughs> yeah. She's kind of like, I kind of want to watch them, but I don't know. I'm like, go right ahead. But I've seen them twice and that's more than enough for me. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, I'm done with those. <laughs> that's that's another. I, I want to have that conversation at some point, but we're running we're running out of time. And by the way, speaking of, of terms that are too on the nose, I was reading coverage of, of we talked about the Cubs earlier yesterday's game and and Ross said when Javi Baez gets hot, that's contagious for the whole team. And I thought, yes, yes, it is. 
Yeah. Got to be got to be careful. These things mean something different. You know, you talked about players who are missing. And one of the things that feels sort of a, an example of that, of a team missing too much, is the Nationals. They started out one in four. And you could say, well, maybe they priced into their plans losing Anthony Rendon, but they couldn't have priced in and losing Juan Soto mm -hmm. to coronavirus uh, I think he, he finally just had two consecutive negative tests, so yeah. he should be back relatively soon. And some kind of injury to Steven Strasburg. And it, right. it's just, you know, we've we've learned from, from looking at these things that there are only so many replacement-level performances a team can handle before it collapses. And I don't care if you are the defending world champion. You, you just start—it's it, like a game of Jenga. You just start pulling out those pieces, and, and you can't do it. Yeah, absolutely. And now, of course, you know, but this, the thing is that this happens to one or two teams every year. And it happened to the, was it, la it was last year, it yes. happened to the Yankees last year, and they still won 100 and bibbly bop, however many, <laughs> like, they, they crushed the league, which was ridiculous, and it spoke to the depth of their, of their roster and their organization. And, you know, it's happened to the Dodgers in past seasons, and, but sometimes it'll lay it to you, often with the Mets, <laughs> will lay them quite low when they open with this, you know, potential playoff roster, and, and by the end of May, they're pretty much all gone. But it's it's the way it's happening this with, you know, not only it's because it's twofold because it's injuries, but also in this infectious disease. But then out of respect for players privacy, they the play they have to get a player's permission to to announce if their absence is due to a covid test or or symptoms or exposure or whatever. So there's a large number of players, several dozen, I'd say, that are on the injured list with no explanation. And now we're at a point now where I think that if a player's on the injured list, I should say, with no explanation, you just have to assume that it's COVID related. But then maybe that's unfair to those players. And and again, there's the issue of the, some players reported late to camp. You know, players like Walker Bueller of the Dodgers did not throw during the downtime over the summer, which was the right thing for him to do because it's a young arm that's had Tommy John surgery and he didn't know what to expect. And the best thing was not for him to just keep throwing, you know, but so he's behind now. The Dodgers got a three and a third or three and two thirds innings out of him uh, Tuesday night. They won the game because the Astros have no pitchers that you can recognize. But again, it's just there's all these these absences and it's more widespread throughout the league. And it happens. I just I feel and maybe it's perception, you know, the idea that, you know, all of a sudden, oh, Mike Moustakis did a couple of good things and now he's gone all of a sudden because it's uh is that covid related have they announced it do we know he's back he he had symptoms and then he tested negative and they said well you can't come back until you have two negative tests but he never tested positive and finally they just said oh hell come back but again but it's kind of weird yes you know just erratic and some semi unexplained absences it's it's very bizarre but that you know the whole thing, this is it's not dystopian. This is a dystopia. <laughs> it's yes. not it's not like that. It is that. That's where we are right now. So and and that's just another feature of it, I guess. You know, again, not to be overtly political, but I saw this tweet the other day by a, a pro Trump female spokesman. I, I the the female part of it is not important. I don't remember the name. That's just the one identifier I had. And she showed a uh, there was a clip of some of these unmarked Department of Homeland Security mm -hmm. or ICE officers thrashing people in Portland. 
And I spent more time on this than it deserved because I was trying to untangle kind of the thought and the verb tenses. And it said something like, this is what Joe Biden's America would look like. And it was very odd because it is what Trump's America yeah. looks like now. You're showing it in real time. It's, right. as you said, it's not a, a future dystopia. It's a present dystopia. So what the hell are you actually saying? Yeah. Like, vote for Biden. It'll be exactly the same, but somehow worse. Or I mean, it, it, and it won't be. I mean, it, he won't do that. But I mean, it just was a, a very strange example the, of trying to say sour cherry jelly. It's a cell phone is yes. what that is. It's, <laughs> right. it's, it's very similar to Mike Pence saying that we don't want the science to stand in the way of reopening the COVID. We don't want the CDC regulations to stand in the way of reopening schools. The whole purpose of the CDC regulations is to, is to, is to adjudicate opening school. It's the whole It's like, you know, we don't, we don't want traffic lights to stop people from barreling into intersections. That's basically what he's saying. It's, it, yeah, it's, it, they're, they're, it's from the very beginning of this administration you know trump has a has a habit of basically just accusing everybody else of what he's doing and that was just it's spread to spread throughout the administration so that that's what that was yeah it's like look at this what look at what a horrible dystopian mess we've made of this country this is what some other guy's gonna do though not it's not even though we already did it we already did it and it's happening right now but we're going to warn you this might happen under somebody else. like I don't it doesn't it's completely illogical but it's it's a cell phone is what it is it it has massive causality problems and you're right that's what it is and since we are at the end and haven't explicitly discussed the the Marlins thing I feel like we have to be honest I feel like we've talked all around it without we specifically... kind of danced around it a little bit Stephen it's there's no there's no I don't know what there is to say about it because it's so this was inevitable and and I and we we both I think railed against the season for this reason. This is the fear, and baseball is being reactive rather than proactive with regards to these things. It's it's very much the country in microcosm. A lack. I mean, the, the, one of the reasons that this we're in the Marlins and the Phillies are in the situation they're in is because it apparently seemed to be up to the Marlins players whether or not they were going to play after multiple positive tests on Sunday. And that's an abdication of leadership from the top, which is exactly why the national infection rates are where they are, because of a, a complete lack of of not even responsible or, you know, correct leadership, but any leadership from the top. It's it's as in the country as in baseball. I guess maybe that's that's the way it's always been. <laughs> but uh, but that, that that's what's going on. And I, I'm not so sure how much longer this this can the season will persist if they can get the Marlins under control, if they can salvage the schedule, you know, but I, I don't even know if I'm rooting for them to do that because I mean, as much as I, I'm so happy to have baseball to watch. It's <laughs> such, I'm really enjoying it because of course I am, because I'm a huge baseball fan, but I still think, you know, intellectually, I know that the right thing to do is to shut this down. I agree. And that's why as much as the Marlins thing was foreseeable when that news hit, I felt so sad because, as you said, I was not in favor of starting. I didn't think it was right for them to reopen in this situation. What Sean Doolittle said that sports are the reward that a functioning society gets for functioning, I think is absolutely right. We have Dead not on. satisfied yep. that that criteria. Mm-hmm. And yet, like you, I was so thrilled to have it back. So we had Thursday night, we had Friday and Saturday, and then boom. Mm-hmm. And... I felt so down at the thought that we might lose it again. 
and we probably should lose it again. And yet, I think it it would have been easier had we just said, yeah, we're not doing this emotionally, I mean. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because, I mean, when everything shut down, I, I, I <laughs> you know, when, when things shut down, and, and I, people who follow me could check out my uh, my page at The Athletic may have noticed I haven't written anything since March or February or whatever. That thing about the uniforms, I think, was the last thing I wrote. Because when things shut down, they said, okay, well, we're tightening the budget, and we'll let you know when the games start back up. And, you know, we can we can kick things off again. But I basically said, OK, I'm, I'm turning off the baseball side of my brain. I mean, I never really turn off the baseball side of my brain because I'm always reading books and collecting cards and, you know, learning about the pilots, <laughs> whatever. But in terms of like 2020 baseball, I was like, all right, yeah, I'm just not I'm not I'm not paying. I'm going to get all I'm going to know where every player is as of this moment. And I'm going to shut it all down and I'm going to, you know, watch old movies and make sure <laughs> make sure my family's healthy and train my puppy and all that kind of thing. And I was fully content to to not crank up the the active part of my and and I was actually rather resistant to do it too. I got back into writing with inside the Dodgers kind of late in the game relative to uh, thing things starting back up. And even then, the first like fifteen or so pieces I wrote for there, five of them said, "This is not good. We should shut down the season." And here's why. So I fully didn't expect the season to really start. It has. I don't expect it to complete to get all the way through the end of September or into the playoffs. It may yet, but uh, and and I and I will watch. And I had to write, and I that was another the sixth thing I had to write along those lines was the kind of rationalization. Is like, well, if if the if I know what the right thing to do is, how can I justify being a participant and effectively a promoter of what is not the right thing to do? And I and I I, I think it's a lot of it's a rationalization, meaning that I'm coming up with excuses to do it. But some of those have to do with that this is how I make a living and do contribute to my family on a financial basis. And some of it's you know, habit and muscle memory. And, and uh, some of it is, is why punish myself because my protest is not going to register in baseball. But if I keep writing and stay engaged and publish articles on SI.com or even if it's a subsite of SI.com, you know, maybe you know, I can keep my voice in there have these conversations with you that people listen to, go on the radio stations that have me on when they have me on or wherever and, and, and voice my opinion and say, this is not right, this shouldn't be happening. But hey, did you see what, you know, <laughs> what Mookie Betts did the other day? Or, what, uh, you know, it's like I kind of holding two thoughts in my head at the same time. And it's, it's uncomfortable and it's weird and it's strange and I'm still not completely at peace with it. But uh, I don't know how to, I don't even know how to end this rant really. That's, uh, well, it, that's it, where you, I am you, in my head. You've hit upon the the definition of moral hazard, and yeah. I am compromised by that too. We all are, and you know, at at for example, you know, I I work for Baseball Prospectus, and this affects them, right? So my continued employment there, not that to their credit, they have actually threatened me or anybody else at all. They have tried really hard throughout this this period not to have it hurt any of the writers or editors, but you would be foolish to think that that would be out of the realm of possibility of this dragged on. So for me, just as for you, there is a, a direct financial interest that I have in doing this. And you know that I can I can write about dead guys all day long if I want to, <laughs> but that is not going to carry a site. What carries a site is is the new stuff and the fantasy stuff and the prospect stuff. And none of that existed for four months. And that is why when they were negotiating, the players and the owners 
were trying to negotiate whether they were going to have this season or not. And various national baseball writers were coming out with columns saying, the players must compromise for the good right. of the game. You really had to wonder why they didn't check themselves because, again, they have that same moral hazard and none of them acknowledged it. And it bothered the hell out of me. Yeah, that that's a very obvious kind of conflict of interest sort of area. And like you say, we, we were exposed to it too, but we were effectively writing columns contrary to our own interests. Yes. And, and I'm still saying, like I say, I'm still kind of saying things contrary. I'm, you know, what, what I'm doing now for, for Inside the Dodgers is writing series previews and, and commenting on the game and to a large degree not doing, because I'm only writing for them a couple times a week. And there's a point at which I've said my, you know, I've written six different things struggling with this. And I feel like I, to a certain degree, I've said my piece and, and, and I don't need to add my voice on the Marlins thing because it's obvious what a disaster that is and what a, and what a warning this is and you know it's the kind of situation where rob manfred's quote the other day was this is not the nightmare scenario and i'm like no but this is how it starts that's the nature of infectious diseases is they spread exponentially so it has to start somewhere and this is how it starts so you know in a failure to understand that is how the country's in the situation we're in now i hope that baseball does not wind up in a parallel situation although they're certainly on a parallel track but yeah, but there's 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 that idea of, you know, yeah, all of these things run counter to my own interests. And I think at the very least, the very least I can do is to share that I am aware of that, <laughs> you know, and acknowledge it. That's the ante. That's the table table stakes. So, Cliff, as always, you and I could talk all day and I'm tempted to. But Jeff Paternostro just came back from paternity leave. And I'm afraid that if I hand him a two hour podcast to work on first time out he might rush off and have another kid just instantly maybe adopt if he could process it that fast and so i have to thank you as always for making what is this like your 20th appearance on the show something like that out of roughly 150 episodes you are definitely our mvp our cleanup hitter and i am as always so happy to have spent the time with you you too, Stephen, and welcome Jacob back from Paternoster Leap. <laughs> Bad news, pilgrims. Despite my concerns, my daughter has headed back to college. Thus, I am doing the endings. Also, the show, it's over. You can follow Cliff Corcoran on Twitter at Cliff Corcoran. As for me, you can follow me at Go Stephen Goldman. Why you should follow me, that's a very different question and one it would be unbecoming for me to answer you can write us by which i mean me at infinite inning at gmail.com and there's a facebook group go to facebook search infinite inning and knock i will let you in and then i will continue to apologize for asking you to go to facebook in the first place should you wish to support the show please go to patreon.com slash the infinite inning brand new patron chris did which is the reason i am saying thank you chris it is much appreciated finally should you find a moment to spare please go to the podcatcher of your choice and rate review and subscribe and exercise too because it's good for coronary health and if you're still around it helps the show maintain its audience i'm trying to do the same thing this episode was co-produced by jeffrey paternostro welcome back and congratulations jeff our theme song which you're hearing now and have been listening to throughout the episode was a co-composition of myself and dr rick mooring who says wear your mask wear your mask wear 
your mask. Well, if people will just listen to Rick and wear their masks, I'll be back next week with more tales and discussion from inside the infinite inning. Did you understand that? That's me saying from inside the infinite inning through my mask. Yeah. For MMB and Yale New Haven Health, this is a 30-second radio spot titled Transformational Radio, No Better Time. YNHH 0036000. At Yale New Haven Health, we've instituted a thorough and comprehensive 10-step safety program in all of our facilities to ensure that everything is clean, safe, and ready to treat you, a friend, or a family member at a moment's notice. And right now, there's never been a better time to take advantage of our world-class medical expertise in the presence of these new world-class safety measures. For more information, please visit us at ynhhs.org. As a small business owner, you're reimagining the way you work. From rethinking your bandwidth to reassessing your voice solutions, you're changing the way you do business. And at Cox Business, so are we. Our flexible internet and voice packages give you the solutions you need to get back to business. Rethink, reconnect, reimagine. Get 25 megs of internet and IPC select for only $74 per month for six months. No annual contract required. And 831.20 restrictions apply. Visit coxbusiness.com for details. All services subject to Cox Business general terms.